Peace and love, everyone. This is Ross Ben coming live and direct virtually with my good brother, Mike Wan. This is episode nine. Right, am I correct? How did it get to nine so fast? I don't know, but I think that it may even be more because we had a couple of these like kind of like, not like a formal episode, but nonetheless, right, right, right. nonetheless, this journey is going into some interesting places. I'm ex particularly excited about what we're going to talk about today, but then I'm also anticipating we got a field trip coming up, which is going to be really exciting too. Yeah, look out for that. And I know we are, we, we're uh, a lunar event behind schedule. And we apologize for that, but we just had technical difficulties with the recording of the last tour we did. And then Mercury went retrograde and it was just like, you know what? We just gonna uh, retrograde through to the next appointed time and here we are. And like Mike said, it's gonna be uh, exciting. We are gonna make up for the wait and the delay for sure. So, yeah, Mystics of the 40th Parallel. Today we're going to explore the Queens, right? Definitely. The queens and the keys that they hold. So let me get myself lined up here. Give me one second. Take your time and I'm pull out my notebook so I can take notes and ask intelligent questions when the time arrives. All right. Yeah. All right, so like we say, we're gonna explore we're gonna explore the keys that the queens hold and and Hey, what I titled today, what I'm about to share is that the Queens hold the keys to the greatest mystery, the greatest mystery of Lenape Hoken. You know, and we've been exploring a lot of them. We're going to review it. But, yo, when we study the Queen God, the life of the Queen Goddess Winona, the few uh, keys. To, to her life and, and, and what she did and, and, and what she embodied and represented in this land. Like I say, some of the greatest mysteries is revealed. And what we're gonna look at today is the fact that Lenape Hoken was an Ethiopian capital in the West, okay? So now let's, let's start by, by kind of exploring a couple of questions, right? So we know they say Columbus discovered America and that prior to his coming over here, there was really no prior contact with the old world. However, we got to ask the question, if that was the case, why did Columbus come over here looking for gold? He knew that there was gold in this land. Moreover, when we look at the life of Sir Francis Bacon, right, who was the architect of England's colonization scheme, 
He was the one who wrote the charter to establish the Virginia Company and Virginia Colony, right? He also wrote a couple of, of books that really laid out his vision of what the colonization scheme would look like, in particular, the one named New Atlantis, right? So when the New Atlantis, Bacon presents uh, this colony as Ben Salem, and it's this mystical land situated between Peru and Japan, where there's like perfect harmony, perfect peace amongst everyone in it, you know? It's technologically advanced. It's not ruled by a king. It's ruled by like magistrate judges, right? There's like a, a egalitarian equality. Uh, and the leadership of Ben Salem is groomed in this college called Solomon's House. Salomon's House, you know, where science is the religion. And Ben Salem is depicted as a colony where this like victimless colonization occurred, you know, that the colonizers and the what the the technology that they were coming with and the just society that the judges of Salomon's house would create, it would it would endear those being colonized so much that they would willingly be a part of Ben Salem, right? So we gotta ask the question, where did this vision of Ben Salem come from? And if Ben Salem is the new Atlantis, what's up with the old Atlantis, okay? So we also gotta remember that Johan Kelp, like he came specifically to Philadelphia saying like, yo, this place right here, the 40th parallel right here, this is the place that you can witness millennium prophecy being fulfilled, the advent of a thousand years of peace, right? Yo, where did this, where did this come from? Where did all these ideas of Lenape Hoken come from, right? Those that have been following the series know that we open series one asking questions like, yo, why is Lenape Hoken some of the most valued real estate in the nation and most densely populated? Why was the United States born in Lenape Hokan? Why is the United Nations established in Lenape Hokan? You know, like, yeah, this, these is important questions that, you know, if we really look to answer them, the quest that you get on, 
It's really the queen goddess that holds the keys to answering those greatest mysteries, you know? But for those that don't know, like, bam, this is your first episode. The Lenapis, they're the elders of humanity, the original man, the real man. This is, you know, what they call themselves. Lenape Hokin, all of Delaware, all of New Jersey, five boroughs of New, of New York City, Connecticut, Philadelphia, East, Eastern Pennsylvania, Lehigh Valley, Delaware Water Gap. Uh, yeah, I want to even say uh, stretches of Lancaster, all the Nappy Hokin. Okay, again, they were the grandfathers of Algonquin speakers in the Northeast and federated clans surrounding Lenape Hokin, okay? Algonquin. So now, like we say, they were the grandfathers of a language family called Algonquin. Algonquin, the word comes from Alagiwanek, which means coming together from many places, and several migratory waves of people make up the Algonquin speakers of the Americas, okay? A root, the root stock of Algonquin speakers came here, I wanna say at around 13,000 years ago and are descended from what we know historically as Atlantis, okay? Then you had a next big migratory wave come around 1700 to about 1500 BCE. This was a time of great instability in the Nile Valley known as the second intermediate period Right? And so you had one seeking refuge from the chaos in the old world come over here. This is what we know as Olmeca, where you had uh, what is known as Olmec culture. And, you know, many know them as the Mississippi Mound Builders of North America, right? Also the Yamasi, okay? That this migratory wave is known by many names, but these are when post-diluvial, post-flood, post-great flood mound builders first started coming to the Americas, okay? We're gonna pull out receipts for this. I know me saying this is like, what, Ross? What? But we're gonna pull receipts. We're gonna show y'all all of this, all right? The next big migratory wave of the Algonquin started to come around 800 BC, 750 BC, through about really all through the uh, Punic Wars between Carthage and Rome, okay? 
But these migratory waves, they took a unique route, different from Olmeca, who left from the coast of Africa and landed in the Caribbean and Gulf of Mexico. This migratory wave took what you would call the North Wind route from the British Isles to Iceland to Greenland and then the Scotia, right? And historically, this migratory wave was a people known as the Lost Ten Tribes of Israel. We're gonna pull receipts, all right? Then the last wave, last big wave started coming around 1200 AD when you had the great interregnum of Europe followed by the expulsion and pogroms of uh, Sephardic Judaic Moors and Islamic Judaic, Islamic Moors out of Europe. And uh, they took both routes, the Northern Wind route, as well as the route from Africa, okay? And just so that, again, for those that are just tuning in, Algonquin speakers, who are they? Uh, this is a general, the areas in red are the general locations that Algonquin speakers dwell. Those are the Western Plains, are the Cheyenne, the Shawnee, the Ojibwe, and the Chippewa, also the Arapaho. In Canada, you got the Cree, who are the, are the Blackfoot, the Maliseet, and the Mi'kmaq. Those are my people, Mi'kmaq, excuse me. South, Southern US, you got the Lumbee and the Roanoke. And Northeast is where they're most concentrated beyond the Lenape. You got the Mohegans, the Pequot, the Wampanoag, the Massachusetts, the Pinnacock, the Quinnipiac, the Montauk, the Powhatan, Nanticoke, Piscataway, Mohican, okay? To name a few. And as we said, within the Northeast, the Lenni Lenape were considered the elder clan, meaning there was by treaty safe passage to Shaksamaxin right here at the Delaware on the shores of well, what is today the Delaware? What was it called back in the day, the Lenape Hana River? And where is modern Penny Pen Treaty Park? All the clans could reach there by, you know, safe passage along certain trails to come and meet with the elders to work things out, right? So now, why was this land? What was chosen? We've kind of explored some of these mysteries. One, there's a wedge of land within what's called Metropolitan Philadelphia, the Wissahickon Gorge, and we're gonna really explore its mysteries today, right? This is some, some ancient earth. This is a piece of Pangean microcontinent, some pre-Cambrian 
earth, you know, ancient, ancient. And so it will follow that the elders of humanity will set themselves up on some of the most ancient earth, right? Also, we're right here at the 40th parallel, you know, we on the 40th parallel and, you know, if you ain't seen nothing in, within these last ep eight episodes, you know this 40th parallel got a lot to do with prophecy, okay? So yeah, them ancients knew that, they knew what it was. So like we said, the grandfathers and the sachems would meet at Shatsamaksum, place where the kings meet. Right, and that's today where it's Penn Treaty Park, okay? But if you wanna really penetrate some of the deeper mysteries of Lenape Hoken, we gotta explore where the queens meet. And we gotta, we gotta really explore the mysteries of the queen of Lenape Hoken who like, I, I'm, I'm not even going to be able to get into the fullness of her mysteries today. This is going to be part, like, we're going to have to loop around in the next episode to come again with more mysteries on the queen goddess, right? Because otherwise, we'd be up in here three, four hours, you know, it's not, wouldn't be fair to Mystic Mike you know so we just going to explore one of the biggest keys left in the city about the queen goddess winona and that's the statue memorializing her assassination excuse me at eakins oval in front of philadelphia museum of art and I'm pretty sure I, I, I decoded this in one of our previous episodes. If I haven't decoded it on a previous episode, you can check out on my YouTube channel, Rospin188, uh, some of my Great Mystery Philadelphia videos, as well as get my book, Great Mystery Philadelphia, because, you know, this is one of the most important statues in, I would say, the world. And just how I know that, I'm going to share this. When I was a youth, in 1991, I had just moved to Philadelphia from D.C. In my movements in D.C., I met Steve Coakley. And when I came to Temple, I, I, I was able to keep the link with, with Steve Coakley and I invited him up here to speak at Temple. And afterwards we asked him, hey, is there anything we could do for you? And he only wanted us to do one thing, which was to take him to this statue right here. And when we got there, I, I didn't know what I was looking at. We, no one was able to decode anything. And really we stood there like kind of just quiet and looking at it for like 10 minutes. And then he was like, all right, I'm out. Pew. So 
this is, you know, I share that just to share the significance of this statue, okay? But we're gonna look at the keys, these two keys that the queen holds to show one of the greatest mysteries of Lenape Hoken, that uh, one by the trident, what does that trident embody? The fact that Lenape Hoken was part of a transatlantic empire, okay? And the cornucopia, in the other hand, as which she's holding a cornucopia of abundance overflowing. Lenape Hoken was known in the old world and it was a legend land of abundance. So this is what we're going to penetrate today. Excuse me, I was getting a sip. So, just want to start by saying, in antiquity, pre-Columbus, the Atlantic Sea was known as the Ethiopian Ocean. Okay, start with that in mind. We got to have the old world frame of reference to view this thing, all right? Now, a big key, to, a big clue to all of this is in the Algonquin language itself, okay? One of the, you know, what we just talked about as far as the Algonquin people and who they are, how there's this ancient root with that absorbed different general uh migratory groups over the centuries right so the algonquin language when you study it what is it it will be classified linguistically as a abu gita that has celtic and hebrew loan words so abu gita is the name of the Gies alphabet and Gies is the oldest language of Ethiopia. It's the parent language of all Habashab speakers. So like Tigrayan speakers, Arichian speakers, uh, Amharic speakers, all of them are Habashab. Their language comes from Gies. And just like our alphabet is named for the first two letters of the Greek alphabet, right? Alpha and beta, alphabet. The Gies alphabet is named for the first four letters of Gies, Abu Gida, right? And Abu uh, Gies and Abu Gida script, ancient, ancient, ancient. These are parent scripts of continents. All right, Gies is the parent language of the African continent for the Bantu, Neolithic, and Mande speakers, as well as Twi speakers, okay? Uh, and if you look to Asia, the Abu Gidas of Asia, which are Sanskrit and Tamil, these are the parent languages of India and Southeast Asia, right? And Algonquin being an Abu Gida 
right, those root speakers that we say, yo, they connected to Atlantis somehow, they got an ancient root. They, they, they spoke an Abu Gita. They spoke a language related to Gis, Sanskrit, Tamil, these ancient root tongues. Now, this Abu Gita absorbed loan words throughout the centuries. The easiest one to use as an example is Sachin, the, king, the name for kings and leaders in Algonquin, right? That comes from the Hebrew word Shechem, which means king. So Sachem, Shechem, here's one example. I'm not gonna get all into it, okay? But also because this Northern route takes them through the British Isles, there's Celtic loan words too, okay? Now, let's pull some receipts. I know y'all be like, Ross, you, you talking a lot. You talking a lot, Ross. You ain't saying nothing though. Yeah, no, I got some receipts for y'all on this one, okay? Diodorus, yo, this is a great resource for ancient history. Theodorus Siculus, the Library of History. We're gonna go to book five, chapter 20. All right. Now that we have discussed what relates to the islands which lie within the Pillars of Hercules, and these is Gibraltar. This is a very, you're going to find that the Pillars of Hercules, uh, Rocks of Gibraltar, which is also known as Tarsus or Tarsus. This is, you know, very pivotal place to our discussion. Okay. We shall give an account of those which are in the ocean for their lies out in the deep off Libya, an island of considerable size and situated as it is in the ocean, it is distant from Libya, a voyage of a number of days to the west. Its land is fruitful, much of it being mountainous and not a little being a level plain of surpassing beauty. Through it flow navigable rivers which are used for irrigation and the island contains many parks planted with trees of every variety and gardens in great multitudes which are traversed by streams of sweet water on it also are private villas of costly construction and throughout the gardens banqueting houses have been constructed in the setting of flowers and in them the inhabitants pass their time during the summer season, since the land supplies in abundance everything which contributes to enjoyment and luxury. The mountainous part of the island is covered with dense thickets of great extent and with fruit trees of every variety and inviting men to life among the mountains. 
It has cozy glens and springs in great number. In a word, this island is well supplied with springs of sweet water, which not only makes the use of it enjoyable for those who pass their life there, but also contribute to the health and vigor of their bodies. There is also excellent hunting of every manner of beast and wild animal and the inhabitants being well supplied with the game at their feasts lack nothing which pertains to luxury and extravagance. For in fact, the sea which washes the shore of the island contains a multitude of fish, remember this, since the character of the ocean is such that it abounds throughout its extent with fish of every variety. And speaking generally, the climate of the island is so altogether mild that it produces an abundance. The fruits of the trees and the other seasonal fruits for the larger part of the year, so that it would appear that the island, because of its exceptional felicity, were a dwelling place of a race of gods and not of men. Mm. Gets deeper. In ancient times, this island remained undiscovered because of its distance from the inhabited world, but it was discovered at a later period for the following reason. The Phoenicians, who from ancient times, and we should say before we go any further, the Phoenicians is a colony of Tyre, and Tyre is a colony of the Ethiopians, okay? The Phoenicians, and we're going to talk more about this, but just hold in mind that Phoenicia is a Libyan outpost for Ethiopian merchants. The Phoenicians, who from ancient times made voyages continually for purposes of trade, planted many colonies throughout Libya, and not a few as well in the western parts of Europe. And since their ventures turned out according, this proves that they took the northern route. Okay. Uh, that, that exodus that we talked about, like when the rise of Assyria and Babylon and in Persia and in Greece and in later Rome, these successive waves of invaders, enemies of Carthage. And, you know, if you study the Bible, the prophets were aligned with the Carthaginians and, you know, were fleeing into Egypt, fleeing into Ethiopia. Jonah went out into the Sea of Tarshish seeking re refuge, and that's when he was swallowed by the whale, okay? So this is, this is this scene, this is this historical setting that we're talking about. And, and they took this northern path through the western parts of Europe. And since their ventures turned out according to their expectations, they amassed great wealth and essayed to voyage beyond the pillars of Hercules into the sea which men call the ocean. And first of all, 
upon the strait itself by the pillars, they founded a city on the shores of Europe. And since the land formed a peninsula, they called the city Gadara. This is Port modern day Portugal. Uh, and I guess Gadara would be Lisbon, modern day Lisbon. In the city, they built many works appropriate to the nature of the region and among them a costly temple of Hercules. And they instituted magnificent sacrifices which were conducted after the manner of the Phoenicians. And it has come to pass that this shrine had been held in an honor beyond the ordinary, both at the time of its building and in comparatively recent days, even down to our own lifetime. Also many Romans distinct but I'm skip ahead. The Phoenicians, while exploring the coast outside the pillars for the reasons we have stated, and while sailing along the shore of Libya, were driven by strong winds a great distance out into the ocean. And after being storm tossed for many days, they were carried ashore on an island we mentioned above. And when they had observed its felicity and nature, they caused it to be known to all men. So they found the Americas, they brought it back like, yo, there's this magical place out there that's just so abundant with everything. Consequently, the Tyrians, the Romans, at the time when they were masters of the sea, purposed to dispatch a colony to it. <clears throat> but the Carthaginians prevented them doing so, partly out of concern, lest many inhabitants of Carthage should remove there because of the excellence of the land and partly in order to have ready in its place in which to seek refuge against an incalculable turn of fortune in case some total disaster should overtake Carthage, for it was their thought that since they were masters of the sea, they would thus be able to move households and all to an island which was unknown to their conquerors. So now we've been talking that the Lenape were a refugee society and that if you made it to these shores, and grandmothers approved your presence and you agreed to live the law of one. Do unto others as you want done to yourself. You can have as much land as you want in a day. And this is why, because these ancient Phoenician Ethiopian colony of the Western Mediterranean set this land as a secret refuge from Rome, okay? There's a good receipt for that. All right, let's keep it moving. All right, we, we mentioned this, but let's build on it, all right? Because this is basically the dynamic of the what they would call the Punic Wars, okay? Before the fall of classical Rome, Rome's biggest enemy 
was Carthage. And the Carthaginians, their strategy against Rome was two-pronged. One, they wanted to keep Rome within the Mediterranean world, not let them beyond Gibraltar. And they also did not want the Romans to have access to the British Isles. Why? One, British Isles was a source of tin, which the Carthaginians were using as an alloy in their weaponry, which was making it stronger than uh, Roman weaponry. But the second was because, excuse me, if you wanted to get to the West, the British Isles was a major jump off for that northern route, okay? And again, what was beyond Gibraltar? A place these Phoenicians, these Carthaginians, these, you know, Ethiopian, this colony of the Ethiopians considered a place of refuge and asylum for Rome, okay? Now, let's answer another question real quick. Why did Columbus come here looking for gold and where did Bacon's vision of Ben Salem come from? All right, now, Columbus, 1400s, Bacon, 1500s. What set it off? Mansa Musa's Hodge in the 1300s, okay? That tipped him off that, that, yo, somewhere in the West, there's a land that has a lot of gold, okay? Why? Because when Mansa Musa made it to Mecca, he told the story of how he got on the throne. And that was because in 1312, his father, Abu Bakr II, amassed thousands of ships and sailed west, never to return. He gave up the throne of Mali. He gave up the throne of one of the most wealthiest empires in the old world, okay? And so when Mansa Musa went to Mecca telling of this story, right? That let him know like, yo, there, there's a land west of Mali, which is in West Africa that, yo, there's, there's, there's a ton of gold over there, all right? So now Mansa Musa, he had several titles. You know, when king sits on a throne, he wears certain titles, right? The most relevant title you have to know about Mansa Musa was that he was Lord of the Mines of Wangara. So now, most people assume that Mansa Musa's gold only came out of West Africa because Mali was in West Africa. Wrong, very wrong. Wangara is a trading network, international, within the African continent, South Africa, East Africa, Wangara mines, West Africa, Wangara mines, right? There's even a Wangara mine in Australia. And, and you know, uh, in the history of the Sudan, the Tariq al-Sudan, 
the Wangara are described as traders who engage in trade and travel from one horizon to the other. So these men were international traders, but they were also silent traders. Meaning, let's say I was a king and I had X amount, I had access to salt deposits, right? I wouldn't like, the, the Wangara wouldn't have direct barter with me where they would uh, learn my language and barter a price. They would come, leave a deposit of gold, and then it was up to me to decide how much salt I thought that gold was worth and then leave that for them to pick up, okay? So, yeah, this is how they roll, right? And, you know, Mansa Musa, when he shared his account of, of Abu Bakr in Mecca, he did like say, uh, it wasn't like he said, yeah, my father went to our Western empire. He said, uh, my father went looking for a land. He, he may have found it, I don't know. Yeah, in my opinion, this was the lord of a silent trading network, keeping his biggest resource an important secret, okay? But if you knew what was up, you knew what was up. And yeah, this is why Columbus, you know, came to the Americas searching for gold, okay? Now, the big question, important question to ask, did Abu Bakr make it to the Americas? I would say, I don't think you could call it merely coincidental that how he left in the early 1300s, right? And in the early 1300s, you appear, you see what is known historically as, as Azteca city-states popping up, uh, in the uh, Gulf Coast, Caribbean, and Mexico, right? And yeah, Aztec means people from Aztlan. Here's the one codex that depicts the departure from Aztlan. If you ask me, now it's funny. I don't see how they say this, but they say this represents people come walking from the north to Mexico to populate Aztlan. To me, it looks like a king, which is represented by a, a giant, a big man on a big boat, leaving an old land that has step pyramids and people making salat. Sounds like Africa to me, right? Coming over to the shore, walking to a certain place, and bam, you got Azteca, okay? So, uh, you know, it is what it is. But the thing about Azteca is that the Azteca empire grew primarily through building friendly relationships and intermarriage, right? It was not military conquest on how Azteca grew. 
right? This is Francis Bacon's inspiration for Ben Salem and the new Atlantis, this idea of victimist colonization, okay? There's another connection I wanna point out with Mansa Musa. When he made his Hajj, right? His security were these highly melanated sisters that were bare, absolutely naked, except for gold adornment and gold weaponry, okay? And the leader of his security, her title was Khalifa. So that really does tie Mansa Musa to the caliphate that we know today as California and Queen Khalifa was the queen, the ruler, the, the decision maker of, of the caliphate of California. They said really that it was all women there, right? Here's an account. I'm not going to read it to you, but while I'm talking, y'all can read this account. It's from a Spanish explorer named Garci Rodriguez del Montalvo. Sorry if I mashed that up. But, uh, right, the description of Mansa Musa's security matches this description of Queen Khalifa and her all-woman nation caliphate of California. And I want to say her capital was on the 40th parallel in California. I'm going to science that more. I've, I've done preliminary research. I want to firm that up for you. And again, we'll, we're going to have to keep looping forward to these queens as the rulers of the West, right? And that's really why I'm bringing up this example because in the West, it seems like women sat on the throne. Khalifa is a throne title. There's more than one Khalifa historically, just like Winona is really a title. And I know Winona is not even the, that's the Europeanized uh, pronunciation. And I need to learn the proper, authentic Algonquin uh, pronunciation. And I, I'm going to commit myself to that. I want to say it's Wanuna, right? I have done preliminary research on that. But again, I want to be firm in it before I come out with it. But Wanuna, I think, is the Lenape. Algonquin pronunciation, but it's a throne title. It means daughter of the chief. And usually the daughter of the chief is the elder of the grandmothers, right? She's the one who sat on the throne and was the decision maker. So I bring up the example of Khalifa to show that there's a parallel between this idea that in, in the West where there's so much wealth and abundance and fortune in the land, right? They don't put men in charge of it because yeah, men, oftentimes the values that drive the decisions of men are temporal in the moment where the values that 
drive the decisions of women, lean more to the eternal, you know? That's just real talk. So let's, let's, let's talk about Mansa Musa a little bit more so we can understand what, what, why was Columbus and Bacon, why were they excluded from this land? Why, did, why was it a discovery for them? Why didn't they have access? We looked at it from a classical perspective. If you want to take it back, what, 1400 years prior to Mansa Musa, right? Where you had the Carthaginians keeping the Romans out like, yo, you know, uh-uh, y'all not welcome here. To be honest, Mansa Musa was continuing that same policy, okay, where uh, right beyond keeping the fact that there absolutely was a land of abundance west of Mali over the sea, right? He actually was making power moves, money moves against the post-classical Rome merchants. We're going to identify them in a minute, all right? But when he made his Hajj, right, he didn't just go straight to Mecca. He traveled from the Niger River Delta in the heart of West Africa, north to the Mediterranean coast, and then traveled along the lower rim of the Mediterranean to Egypt, then in the Saudi Arabia, kind of where Mecca is, correct? You know, if you could visualize that. As a matter of fact, I'll go to a map. Here, let's go here. So this is the path, El Hajj, excuse me, Mansa Musa took on his Hajj, okay? And everywhere he went, he showered the towns he passed with gold. And, and, and you know, we have to say Mansa Musa is the wealthiest man ever in recorded history. He makes Bill Gates, Bezos, all these cats today. His wealth, you know, makes them look, you know, squatters, like they squatters compared to Mansa Musa, okay? This is, the only, this is the one man in history who was able to monopolize the gold market in the Mediterranean. And so when you study history, they wanna play it like it was just random, like he was, you know, excuse me, like just some dumb Negro, some dumb Niger, Nigerian, right? Nigerian who didn't know what he was doing and just throwing his money around, right? No. He was buying leverage for the Wangara trading network throughout the Mediterranean to at least on the lower rim of the Mediterranean, exclude what the post-Roman era merchant uh, network, 
and we'll talk more about them. Okay. So yeah, that was Mansa Moose's intention. He wanted the leverage to reroute key east-west trade paths through the regions controlled by these Judaic merchants of the Mediterranean world. Prior to Mansa Musa, their power base was Fez in Morocco and Joppa, which is modern day Tel Aviv. Okay. So now, who were these merchants? that Mansa Musa was attempting to box out. You could say they were post-classical Rome, Sephardic merchants from Sephora, which is like uh, biblical France and Spain, okay? They have been referred to historically as what we would call Radonites, which means tribe of Dan. And so this really shows another key clue that really this division goes back to Solomonic times where the Wangara network represents the uh, Southern two tribes of Benjamin and Judah. And these Radonites embodied the trade network that came out of the northern tribes of the, you know, the 10 tribes to the north, the northern kingdom after Solomonic, you know, King Solomon's uh, left the throne, right? So these Radonites, they became the merchants of Rome, classical Rome. And when Rome fell in 476 AD, they did their best to keep control of their trade routes, okay? Their network is described in Ibn Cordoban's Book of Records and Kingdoms that was written shortly after the resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire by Charlemagne in 800. Okay, and I'm not going to read it to you. Look at that source, you know, look up that source. This is important. Okay, but let's look at the map. I'll, I'll show like you can like glance over some of this. You can see uh, that these merchants, they spoke Arabic, Persian, Roman, French, Spanish, and Slavic languages. Okay. Uh, they travel by ship and land, Constantinople was a big stop for them. Antioch was a big stop for them. The city, uh, Al-Jabiya on the Euphrates was a big stop for them, right? Let's look at this map right here. This is uh, Ibn Khaldabin's map of roads and kingdoms in 870. All right. All of the paths in red are the Wangara network. All of the paths in blue are the Radonites. So if you see the Wangara, 
Here was where Mansa Musa was set up in the time of Mali. You see it's connected with Ethiopia, right? You see it controls Tarshish and Iberia. It goes all up here to Iceland. Does it stop at Iceland? No, it doesn't. It continues over, all right? It leaves Africa from here as well. This is the path Abu Bakr II took to the Americas, okay? And like I said, the Wangara, they go from uh, horizon to horizon. You see the Wangara, they got trade networks all up in here. Eastern Russia, Pacific Ocean on the east side, right? Wangara was all over. Blue represent the Radonites. Okay, who else represents the Radonites? Columbus, Bacon, these are these boys. This is why they had to quote unquote discover the Americas. Okay, and why? Because going back to Phoenician Carthaginian times, really, even if you want to take it back to Grecian times, the Americas was Elysium. The, the, the garden, the forbidden garden that certain people didn't have access to. And Elysium became, you know, uh, this battle of drama in Roman times between the Carthaginians and the Tyrians, according to Diodorus, right? But now, like we said, the Ethiopians, the Phoenicians, Carthaginians, they're all one people. <laughs> they're all one people, all right? So if we, it's not surprising that we can find reference to Lenape Hokan in the Kebra Nagas, which is the Ethiopian Book of Kings, okay? And in this chapter right here, I think it's chapter 39. I apologize for not having the uh, chapter identified, okay? But uh, what they're doing, they're describing the boundaries of the king of Ethiopia. And basically what these boundaries are is this Wangara network, okay? This Wangara network is what is described in the Cabra Nagas. All right, so let's, let's look at this. On the Eastern boundary of the kingdom of the king of Ethiopian is the beginning of the city of Gaza. So they're in uh, like Palestine, right? In the land of Judah, that is Jerusalem. And its boundary is in the lake of Jericho. And it passes on to the coast of its sea to Leba and Saba. And its boundary goeth down to Bissus and Asnet I want to identify these places, right? Again, we're we going to get deeper. This is just the beginning. And its boundary is the sea of the blacks and naked men. Remember that. And goeth up Mount Kebaranian into the sea of darkness. That is the say, the place where the sun setteth. So far in the west and its boundary extendeth to Phenael and Lasiphala, and its borders are, listen to this, 
Its borders are the lands of the garden, i.e. paradise, where there is food in plenty and abundance of cattle. And near its boundary reaches as far as Zawel and Pathless on to the Sea of India. So now they've, they've passed this land of paradise that boundary ends up at the Sea of India. That's the Pacific Ocean. So now he's talking about the West Coast again. And its boundary is at the, as far as the Sea of Tarshish. So Tarshish is Gibraltar. So he's saying like, yo, this land, its boundary is from the Atlantic, Tarsh, the Sea of Tarshish, to the Pacific, the Sea of India. And its boundary is the place where comes to where our enumeration began. Okay. So, the Napi Hokan is described as being as a place where the sun setteth and a garden where there is food and cattle in abundance. Now, remember, we said it's an indigenous capital. Right, so it's the center, but it's like the capital of a place, what? The boundaries stretch to India, the Pacific, and the Atlantic, the Sea of Tarshish. And it was the sea of blacks and naked men. All right, this is what the Kebernegah says. You're gonna come forward to another source. This is a description of New Sweden. So this is one of the first descriptions of what is Pennsylvania from a colonist from Europe. It's before William Penn, okay? And yo, this, this thing right here, this like, again, we could be in this all day. It wouldn't be fair to Mighty Mike, Mystic Mike. We're gonna look at three sections. We're gonna look at one, page 26, where they talk about like, yo, this, this probably is King Solomon's land. Uh, we're gonna look at page 40 to 44, Lenape Hoken is paradise. And we're gonna look at page 65, it being the land of the naked man. Hey, Mike, tune in real quick, man. Yes, sir. What you think, brah? So you, <laughs> there is so much, there's so much. So I'm, I'm very curious to where you're gonna go in this book because I'm looking at this Thomas Holm uh, character right now and I wanna see what he's gotta say. So you got me on the edge of my seat on these three pages. Oh, uh, give thanks, brah. All right, so. Let me see, what was that first page I said? Oh. Page 26. Y'all bear with me. All right, 26. This is a great source too. Y'all should look it up because I'm telling you, I can like, there's no way I could do it justice in a little bit of time. Okay. 
All right, this is it about it being, this place being the mystical land of Ophir of King Solomon. Other learned men are of opinion that America was discovered long before that time. He's talking about the different explorers that have come to the Americas and he accounts some of what they said. And then he gets to this point. Other learned men are of the opinion that America was discovered long before that time and that it was known to the ancients at a very remote period, which they attempt to prove from the second book of Chronicles chapters eight and nine, where it is said that the wise King Solomon sent a ship to the land of Ophir, which returned every three years with 450 talents of fine gold, and also with silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. They think that the land of Ophir, to which that ship sailed, the America was particularly Solomon's Islands or Hispaniola and Peru, and this opinion they support by the following argument. The ship, say they, was three years on her voyage. The place to which she sailed must have been very distant. The East Indies were not far from Solomon's dominion. No voyage could be undertaken from there, from the north to the south, which required so much time. The ships, therefore, must have steered westward course towards the New World, which is far distant from Solomon's kingdom. Besides, no other country in the world was richer or more overflowing with gold, silver, apes, peacocks, and precious trees and stones than the American hemisphere. But those who are of the contrary opinion maintain that the land of Ophir, Ophir can be no other country than the East Indies because it was nearer to King Solomon's dominions. And he might well have procured from thence all these precious articles, okay? It is true that America abounds with gold and silver and other precious articles, but the East Indies, particularly China in King Solomon's time, produced a great deal more and therefore da 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 da, hold up. All right, he then goes on to quote Diodorus, the same quote we explored, right, previously. All right, so he poses the idea like, yo, this very well may be the land of 04, King Solomon, you know? Now let's, let's keep that in mind as, we come to the description. This, is, this chapter is the chapter of Pennsylvania. New Sweden called Pennsylvania. All right. And we're going to jump to where right here, page 40. When the Swedes came to this country for the first time, they found it so pleasant and agreeable that they could think of no name more proper to be given to the place on which they first landed than that of Paradise Point. And this is where the Delaware Bay 
empties into the Atlantic. So this is the mouth of the Atlantic. Uh, and where this is where the mouth of the Lenape Hana, excuse me, the ancient Lenape Hana and the Atlantic Ocean meet. The Swedes named it Paradise Point. I think it's uh, near where on the other side of, of where Cape May, New Jersey and near Lewes, Delaware. Okay, this is Paradise Point. When Sir William Penn, the present governor, arrived in Pennsylvania in November 1682, he found the air so perfumed that it seemed to him like an orchard in full bloom. It is so related by Francis Pastorius, a lawyer and justice of peace in Pennsylvania, in his description of that country, in which he also says that the trees and shrubs are everywhere covered with leaves, filled with birds, which by their beautiful colors and their delightful notes proclaim the praise of the creator, all which is confirmed by the Swedish ministers, da 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 da, who conclude that this country may be justly called what? The land of Canaan. And that he has not been able to describe half its productions and its beauties. There is a great variety of trees in this country of which are the following principal, filbert, chestnut, walnut, box, mulberry, cypress, muscatel, vine, apple, pear, cherry plum, damson, and the fine sweet smelling sassafras. There's also peach tree, grapevines of various kinds, cedar tree, two or three fathoms thick, pine, birch, asp, ash, plain, linden, hazel, hawthorn, all kinds of trees finer and yielding a more pleasant smell than any in Sweden or anywhere else. Among the animals are found lions, leopards, bears, elks, deer, beaver, otter, mink, sable, panthers, wild cats, wild boars, foxes, lynxes, wolves, hare, muskrats, of birds and fowl, he goes on and on and on, right? The fish, sturgeon, cod, salmon, trout, mackerel, rock, pike, horn pike, perch, four species of roach, herring, eel, lampreys, also various kinds of shellfish, oysters, lobsters, sea and land turtles. Besides all these things, there's a variety of fruits and productions of the earth known as well as unknown, which are found wild in great quantities, okay? There grows a kind of grain called maize, but which in Europe is known by the name Indian or Turkish corn. It is produced in America in great abundance, particularly near the plantations. Mr. Richard Granville, an Englishman, says maize looks like the English pea and is of various colors, white, red, yellow, sky blue. The corn is extremely fruitful, one grain producing from 
1,000 to 1,500 and sometimes 2,000. It is of three qualities. Some grow six to seven feet, ripen in 11 and a half to 12 weeks, right? He's just going on and on the abundance of this Indian corn and keeping it moving. But y'all got the idea, check it out in more detail, right? There is also amongst other things, the most beautiful and excellent fruit, which we will call and sweeten watermelon. It grows in rows like Pompeians. And some of them are so large that three tankards full of liquor may be extracted out of one melon. When they are cut, the inside is of a beautiful flesh color. The taste is delightful and it melts in the mouth like sugar. Ah. All right, Virginia tobacco in abundance, right? The country moreover is well watered with rivers and creeks and it has mineral waters with medicinal virtues. Almighty God has so ordered that the interior country is much more fruitful than which lies on fresh waters. Large and small cattle thrive exceedingly. Remember the cabin of gas. He said it was the land of plenty where there's food in abundance as well as an abundance of cattle, right? Large and small cattle thrive exceedingly well in this other parts of America. Multiply to such degree that the Spanish historian Antonio de Era spoke of a man who had two ewes, which in 10 years produced 40,000 sheep. When the Swedes first came to this country, they only brought with them one or two pairs of each kind of cattle, which in a short time so multiplied that nobody knew their number. Besides that, a great many ran wild into the woods which anybody may take up at his pleasure. Man, man. Oh, this is important to show you this was part of the Wangara secret silent trade network that if you came over here and they gave you some gold, you better have been quiet about it or they was gonna take you out. Once an American Indian went to pay a visit to Governor John Prince and observing that his wife had a gold ring on her finger, asked her why she wore such paltry stuff, which the governor was like, yo, you could procure this. And if he said, do it. And if you do, I'm gonna give you some fine presents to which the Indian replied that he would for he knew of a mountain that was full of it. The governor then showed him cloth of various colors which <clears throat> with lead, gunpowder, mirrors, and several other things and said to him, I will give you all these. If you will get me a piece of that stuff as a specimen, I will send two of my men with you to get it. But the Indian would not consent. He said, I will, I'll go. He wasn't gonna like take him to the source, but the Indian said, I'll go first and bring you the specimen and then it'll be time to send somebody with me. So some days later, he returned, brought a piece of the ore as large as two fists. 
which the said governor caused to be assayed and found it to contain much gold out of which he had two rings and bracelets made. He then asked the Indian to take some men with him, which he promised to do, but had not at that moment. He would return in a few days and bring him some more gold. But afterwards, meeting other Indians, he began to boast of what he had received from the governor, on which they asked him what he had given for it. So when the Indian went back and was like, yo, I got this fabric, I got some uh, buckshot, I got some gunpowder. Other Indians was like, what'd you do? He's like, I brought him some gold. The other Indians put him to death in order that that place should remain unknown, fearing that its discovery might occasion to them some mischief. And so the gold mountain was never discovered. Okay, let me find that last page 40 through 44, Naked Men, 65. Okay. Wow. What you think while I'm looking for this mic? Uh, I'm really rethinking, uh, because I live in this area, you live in this area, and I'm very familiar with like, let's say, uh, uh, where Cape Henelopen is and Lewis, Delaware is, and my experience is there. And what this world, what this particular part of earth looked like at that time, I'm particularly intrigued by the notion of the smells because I would say that's my most dominant sense is the sense of smells. So that's definitely speaking in my in my language. And then I'm also thinking about all of the all of the legends which I know within Pennsylvania of gold and silver mines. So it's 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 this book uh, which is new to me is is a really really interesting um uh, uh point of reference to then go uh, or lens to look at other other information i either attained through my own experience or through just reading other people's works but it's it's uh, immensely thought-provoking wow thank you bro well look for whatever reason of 63 four five all right Man. You want to do like a control F and search for naked? What I'm going to and do. F, that should work for Apple, right? What I'm going to do is just say, hey, y'all, get this find, this, find this document and read about the naked men of Lenape Hoken. And you'll see that it lines up with the description of this land from the Kaber Nagas, you know? So yes, that's what we're going, that's what we're going to say with that. This is a description of the province of New Sweden, now called by the English Pennsylvania and America by Thomas Holmes. Okay. 
So check it out. Will, will you do me a favor? Will you show that uh, title page one more time? I want to see who the notes were from. It was Peter something or other. Sure. Peter S. Duponce. I mean, I'm just going to say this. That just sounds a little bit too close to Dupont for my for, for me. Hey. Hey. Considering where we are, but you know, yeah. who knows? That's what jumped yeah. out as soon as I saw yeah. that. Mm -hmm. All right, but that's an excellent source. All right, but you can see that the most earliest accounts that of the Swedes lines up with what we read about in the Caribbean Nagas. You know? All right, but now we are we are getting to some of the last mysteries we're gonna to cover today. And yeah, we know Shaks Moxon that this is the place where the kings meet, right? And that that was where Penn Treaty Park on the Lenape Hana River which is today's Delaware River. It's the east side of the city, right? Uh, people know about that. That's that's part of the lore. This is Shaksamaxon is supposedly where Penn Treaty, where Chief Tammany and 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 William Penn uh, had their treaty of peace and friendship. Okay, but if you really wanna penetrate the deepest mysteries of this region. I think we got to explore where the Queens meet. And this in Algonquin, this land is Nittabakank. Okay, which means place easy to get to. It might have a dual meaning also, which means place of the warriors, okay? But this place easy to get to, this place of the warriors, Nittabakan, this is from what I've been able to put together, this is where the queens, this is where the queens of Lenapihana, where the daughters of the, of the chiefs, the Unanas, the Wunanas, Winunas, the, the Winonas, I'm going to get that proper enunciation. This is where they met. And today we know it as Germantown. Okay. But colonial Germantown really comprised five communities, current communities today. Germantown, Mount Airy, Chestnut Hill, Worcester, and East Falls the mysteries that are in these five communities. And like I say, man, we're gonna to have to do this again. We're gonna to have to come again with this. You can't penetrate it all in one session. Uh, man, very important, okay? One of the mysteries to penetrate is right here. This, I think, is the Grandmother's Council Rock in Chestnut Hill. This is at the one of the highest peaks in metropolitan Philadelphia. And it's not far from where Germantown Avenue and Rex Avenue intersect. 
the highest intersection in Philadelphia is, is Germantown Avenue and Rex Ave. Rex is Latin for king. So they put the king. You see this theme in Chestnut Hill of placing the king on top of the queen's, the grandmother's uh, throne on top of the grandmother's council rock, okay? But this place right here, this is what the Tadiskan statue is on top of as well, okay? Uh, man, the mysteries here, we gotta really, really penetrate. And we're not gonna get real, we're not gonna get into that today, all right? But I will, I did bring it up. I'm gonna put a shameless plug in. This is where we do our uh, Wissahickon wellness walks. And we're going to the upper Wissahickon uh, history and geology walk. It's coming up in July. Go to wissahickonwellness.com to register. We're going to this place, okay? Something else at the top of the hill, up top around that Chestnut Hill area that's just, oh man, is many of the indigenous mounds, the burial mounds of the grandmothers. That's what my, when I go to these places is what my spirit tells me. They're occupied in such a way that you could still see them in the topography, topography of the urban environment. And we're gonna take that tour uh, in July too, the Mounds of Lenape Hokin tour. Again, you can sign up at wissahickonwellness.com. I'm telling you, don't miss it, it's mystical. Hey Mike, jump in real quick, bro, because you went on one of these tours. Tell the people what your thoughts on. I've been on two of these tours. Now, if I went on one of these tours, it'd be like, all right, well, maybe he liked it, maybe he didn't, but I came back for more. So I think that in itself should be the clarity in terms of what, what I thought. Fascinating. This is what I'll say, what I enjoyed the most about it was the blending of like both the geological and historical context of seeing the land and then the modern urban environment and being able to bridge the two, which which in your narrative and storytelling, Rosben, was that's what 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 weaves it all together. I think that if you have an opportunity to come to one of these tours, you'd be foolish not to go and do so. Give and thanks. that is not a shameless plug. This is a the people should come and see these. Give thanks, bro. Give thanks. Appreciate love that. But now, like we've been saying, the queen holds the keys to the greatest mystery, right? And one of those five neighborhoods I mentioned, East Falls, right? There's something real mystic about this place. Even if you go to the Google, I'm not like Wikipedia. If you go to Wikipedia and look up East Falls on Wikipedia, it says, and I'm just using Wikipedia to show like it's such an odd thing about this small little community. It has three streets with the word Queen in them. Queen Lane, New Queen Street, and Indian Queen Lane. Okay, and so there's something really mystic about East Falls. And 
the Indian queen, tied into the Indian queen. Let's look at this source right here, the early history of the falls of Schuylkill Maniunk. Okay. All right, we're going to look up three things real quick. We're going to get a description of these falls that have since been uh, submerged. Again, the abundance, the ultra abundance of where the queens meet. And then a description of the Lenape in this area, okay? So, oh, Mike, you got to tune in on this one, bruh. Well, we listen got to this. This is listen to how they describe the Schuylkill, what's now today the Schuylkill River at East Falls, where the East Fall Bridge. Now, I'm going to play this real quick and give a little, just a little. This, if y'all remember, if y'all checked out episode 5.5. Uh, why from the 40th parallel? Why is there no 40, 40th parallel marker in Philadelphia? We were on Kelly Drive at Laurel Hill Cemetery, right where the 40th latitude begins. This is East Falls. This is the beginning of East Falls, right at the Schuylkill River, about a half mile above, not even a half mile maybe even just a quarter mile from this point of the river right here. I'll back it up again so you, we can see it. And this is on the river right where the 40th parallel begins. Not much further up, like a quarter mile going in that direction is what's called the Falls Bridge. And that is a modern landmark for what was called the falls, the falls of Schuylkill, or the, you know. This is my understanding, the original name of this river was the Maniunk. So we would say the falls of the Maniunk. And this place was like one of the most mystical, magical locations in Lenape Hokan. This, this is why it earned, this neighborhood earned street names, all three street names dealing with uh, an Indian queen and, and a new queen and Queen Lane because a big part of overthrowing the power of the grandmother council not only involved actually assassinating the queen goddess Winona, which we'll talk about, but destroying the abundant estuary and, and fishing source of the falls of Maniunk. And I want, I want, why I wanted you to jump on Mike is because we're gonna read the description of these rocks, man. And I want you to tell me what this sounds like to you, bruh. All right, 
there was a very singular and curious impression or indentation on a part of this rock that attracted many persons there to view it. It was apparently the impression of an immense human foot. What does it sound like, Mike? Well, that sounds like two things. One is it sounds like the human feet uh, petroglyphs, which we find right at the Susquehanna River. But because the scale is so big, it also and and it's unclear if if uh, you know is this a like a no? Oh, look at that! Uh, it reminds me also of the whisper tree and the human ear we see in tree form. It's hitting up both of those, which are like probably like two miles, eh, four miles apart on the Susquehanna, right at the 40th parallel. Now, when I read the description, I immediately went to those rock formations you took us to. Oh, that? Those two? Yeah, like th those, those indentations. Yes. So here, <laughs> here, one of the descriptions is like, yeah. Uh, there's a, a imprint of a foot it showed the heel, hollow of the instep, ball of the foot, and toes. It was called by the people in the neighborhood the devil's foot. And there were some superstitions in reference to it. Okay. Now, also here. There were many other holes or pots, as if they were called in the rocks. And some of the pots are still to be seen on pot. Da, da, da. There was a tradition that they were used by the Indians for pounding corn. And when we visited the rocks that you took us to, I think we came to an area Let me see if I could find it. I want to say it was around 50. What look right here. <laughs> Doesn't this look like a formation that would be ideal for pounding maize? Those formations, like the, the yes, yes, the for the short answer. But what I'm really what I'm really blown away by right now is the the parallel, if you will, between the um, the pothole, what are described by geologists as potholes and all of these markings within the stones um, and how, how distinct and how when people see them, they're like, this is uncommon. It is just like a basic in human instinct to realize there's something special and that we're seeing them both at the 40th parallel and the two parallel rivers, uh, the uh, Lenepehana and the Susquehanna uh, is, is, yeah, you're blowing my mind. All right, let's listen to this abundance, man. Listen to the abundance. Now, the thing with that rock that he was describing early on, again, this, this rock has been submerged since 1822 when the Philadelphia Waterworks, those who've been following my research know how significant of a place that is. And that's where the statue at Eakins Oval, where the queen goddess, you know, that what we're decoding, this is where this at. When the Philadelphia Waterworks was built in 1822, it submerged this rock. But the significance of this rock was that the way 
it formed a semi-natural dam. It was an amazing fish hole, amazingly abundant fish hole. So listen to some of the accounts of the type and amount of fish that were caught here. In his younger days, he has told me he could often catch with a dip net 3,000 catfish in one night and sold them in two shillings a hundred. The perch and rockfish were numerous and large. Often he caught 30 to 80 pounds of a morning with a hook and line. He used to catch fish for the fishing company of Safe Davis, da 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 da. There was nothing extraordinary <laughs> in Mr. Shrunk's catching 3,000 catfish in a night. I dare say there are persons still living in the neighborhood who have taken more than that number, number reportedly. And that so as late as 1817, I have seen men in one scoop of the dip net have it so full that these catfish as to be unable to lift them in a boat, but were obliged to take them out with their hands and other contrivances. There were a number of persons at the falls who in the fishing seasons lasting some three months made enough by catching shad in a simple hoop or dip net to support their families for a whole year. They anchored or fastened to the rocks in the rapids, the small boats from which they fished. Some of the particular stations were more valuable than others. Okay. So that's just a good example of, oh, okay, here's a little more. On one occasion, I saw them with one sweep catch 430 fine shad and saw besides many escape from the scene. All right. This is showing you how like super abundant this land where the queens meet was, you know? And uh, we're gonna go to one last section here before we wrap this up. <clears throat> and there's a description of this land and what it meant to the Lenape. Tradition says, and I have no doubt of the fact, that the Falls of Schuylkill was the last place deserted by the Indians who inhabited this part of the country. So Shaksamox and Lenape Hokan, what was the last part where it was like, damn, y'all, we can't live with y'all. As, as you know, we've been living here 13,000 years, but we can't live with y'all no more. The last place deserted was right here. It being the head of tidewater and consequently such fine fishing ground. And this, you know, had a peculiar attraction to them that it must have been a great resort of theirs. Now, Mike, when we went to, when you took me to them rocks in the Susquehanna, that's what you and Jesse both said. That's what I've been saying since the first time I put my feet there. I was like, at one point, this was a resort. I can see it as a place where people came 
to recreate, to recreate. Well, to look rest. at this, man. Here it is for Here. you, bro. It's the same thing. It is yes. the same thing. That it must have been a great resort of theirs is proved by the fact of the innumerable Indian relics that have been found in the vicinity. I have seen and found myself many stone axes, arrowheads, other instruments made of stone. Okay. So bang, bang. Okay, Ross Ben had to come with some receipts today because you know I've been making some wild claims, some wild statements in our uh, eight plus episodes. So I wanted to, you know, show like, yo, I'm not just shooting at the hip with this thing. Like, you know, it's grounded in historical documentation and research. Okay, so now again, this great fishery of where the queens meet, the, the, the mystery of her cornucopia. This is, this is what this, this cornucopia right here that she had in one hand, the trident in the other, this, was, this is what was embodied in Nittibakum, all right? Where the queens meet, this land of East Falls where Indian Queen Lane, uh, Queen Street and New Queen Lane all are, which is on Kelly Drive, which feeds right here to Eakins Oval too, right? Now, I didn't have any, I might do it in the autumn now that things are opened up. I didn't plan any tours in this part of the city for the summer because last year I took some folk down there and the fits, many of the sites of value was closed off and inaccessible because of the pandemic. <clears throat> so maybe by this autumn, we'll get down here, okay? But again, this estuary of the queen goddess was destroyed in 1822 by the Philadelphia Waterworks. The dam at the Waterworks prevented spawning fish from coming up the Maniunk River, also known today as the Schuylkill, right? And it also uh, flooded the river, submerging the protruding rocks that made the natural fishing, okay? So again, the queen holds the key to many of the mysteries of this land, okay? And we see, Let's just look at this real quick because here is the up close where we can see the cloak dagger of the colonial assassin coming to take the queen goddess out. She's not looking at the cloak dagger, she's looking at the laurel that the other colonists flanking her is holding up saying, hey, come and be a part of Rome, right? And wow. so when we look, Queen goddess, she's chained to her throne. She's chained to her power. She's chained to the scepter. She's flanked by maidens with what? Empty fishing nets. That's what I say, destroying that natural estuary was a big part of destroying the queen goddess Ununa's queendom. Then appeared who? 
on the other side of the statue, Columbia, the new queen. Remember, we said there's three, three streets up there. Columbia becomes the new queen. This is her as the goddess of war with the dead burying the dead. Wherever the dead are buried, she got multiple flagpoles. She sets up a war memorial. So here's the other side. Look, the dead burying the dead. This dude is dead man with a shovel. This dude is a dying man with a, with a gun. Here's Columbia, the new queen on top of the Philadelphia Waterworks. Okay, so here's her as the new queen. Columbia is the new queen once she, the old queen was assassinated. And remember we said a part of her taking over her queendom involved destroying her estuary, which was done by the creation of the Philadelphia Waterworks. This act enslaved who in Nile Valley we would call Happy. Happy, the river god that makes us happy, that brings abundance. The god of that, uh, the god Happy that makes us happy, you know? Now he's in chains, he's in prison with the American bald eagle imprisoning him. And that is in contrast to someone I'm sure who's been following uh, the series is familiar with, Prometheus, who is freeing himself from his bird captorer, the vulture, in front of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Again, aligned with the statue of Eakins Oval and aligned with this statue on the Philadelphia Waterworks. So again, when we study the queen, the queen holds the keys to some of the greatest mysteries of Philadelphia, particularly Lenape Hokan being an Ethiopian capital in the West. Wow. That was, that was, that was some presentation. That was some presentation. Um, Thank you, bro. May I uh, make a few comments? Or? Please, I'm, okay. I'm done. Do I've run my mouth enough. Do I have screen share? Can you give me screen yeah, share capability? Let me do that. And that would be uh, same thing right up here. No, that I, 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 don't, I don't. I think, where do you do that? You do it either there or at the screen share at the bottom. It's one of those two. I think it might be down at the screen share. There might be a little uh, arrow next to the word screen share and should allow me to have capability. Okay. We will have to edit a little, I guess. All right. Yeah. No, okay. Uh, it's no big deal. Yeah. Uh, so let's go right. Let's go right here. All right. Um, the first thing I want to point out, let me get this out of the way. Uh, there's Cape. Uh, uh, Henlopen right there. And, and I wasn't even, I had some very strange experiences, but what I wanted to begin to point out was this is what really caught my attention was like when we're talking about uh, Johann Kelp. And so this image right here is, this is the, the portrait of him. And, you know, by 
by traditional by traditional history this is said to be the first portrait in the colonies in the new world so anytime something's marked with the first is always significant and listening to the the connection you had made to ethiopia um you know something which is always like i i've kind of noticed in the backdrop but i never really thought much of it was the headgear which kelp is wearing and if you go and look at least of the stuff i've seen of life in the early colonies you don't see too many people with this type of 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 of, of wrap on his head and it looks very very similar to me just you know this is just in passing of what we see in the uh, uh, an Ethiopian head wrap. So I found that very interesting to see that. And I also wanna make this comparison um, as we're talking about like the Phoenicians and their prowess on the sea. And these are pictures of what, and, and images of what the Phoenician ships were said to look like. And, uh, you know, they look just like the Viking ships. Here's a Viking ship, you know, thousands of years later, maybe a thousand years later. And we can see that it's of the same style. So, you know, this kind of like just, just um, supporting a lot of these ideas uh, which you have um, shared with us. Um, and then the last thing which, um, which I also wanted to point out, and, and I'm curious what your thoughts are, is the over or actually no there's one more thing i was going to share this and then and then we'll get to it so um was the the trident in the queen's hand is also um reminiscent of the trident which is known as the symbol of the society of unknown philosophers and so this is kind of one of these, like if you could imagine like the, the secret societies go in layers by like how secret they are, you know, how secret can they be if we've heard of them? So, you know, we've got the Masons and then maybe deeper from that would be the Rosicrucians. And then deeper than that is this society of unknown philosophers and, you know, very much tied in to all of this same sort of time period as the Rosicrucians. But we also see this trident is being used there and so that leads me to um, kind of like what my uh, a question I have for you, you know, just kind of like briefly, if you want to go into it, was the overlap between um, Tyre, uh, T-Y-R-E, you pronounce it a little bit different than me, and I think I'm, I usually pronounce things incorrectly, um, King Solomon, and then the Masonic tradition um, within Freemasonry, like, you know, that's where their, their mythology begins with um, King, uh, King Hiram of Tyre and Hiram of Biff was like the architect designed to build his great, his great temple. Um, how, does, how does that kind of like Freemasonry uh, uh, tradition, because it plays such an important part of the colonial the colonial um narrative how does that overlap into the history of solomon and um and the other information which you shared with us today yes yeah, intricately tied in because so when you read the biblical account of king solomon and how he met queen of sheba right they were introduced by Hiram, Hiram of Tyr. Hiram of Tyr 
was an Ethiopian merchant. Uh, you know, Tyre, again, was an Ethiopian colony. Carthage was an Ethiopian colony. And so Hiram was an Ethiopian merchant who more or less introduced Solomon to Sheba, right? And when he did that, of course, he brought the treasures of Ethiopia to Solomon. Like, you know, he lists, the Bible lists all the talents of gold and ivory and this and that Hiram brought from Ethiopia and Sheba up to Solomon. In return, Solomon gave Hiram several port cities along the Mediterranean, Tyre being one of them, right? Then uh, Solomon married who's what they call Pharaoh's daughter. And this is probably making an alliance through marriage with uh, who we call the leader of Memphis or the Memphite uh, power base in Northern Kemet, right? Solomon representing the Amun-Ra order based out of Thebes or uh, Waset, Ipeti, Sut, Luxor, you know, that this area is known by many names, right? And Solomon more than likely being the historic King Amenhotep III, okay? Uh, but this alliance more or less made clear, free of passage trade routes from Ethiopia up all the way through the Nile Valley to the Mediterranean, and then throughout the entire Mediterranean to the Sea of Tarshish. Hiram had a fleet known as the Fleet of Tarshish that would make three-year journeys and come back to uh, the Mediterranean world with all this gold, all, you know, just, again, they would list all this stuff that Hiram, and this fleet, so because Solomon gave Hiram the land as these ports, they say Solomon's priests rode on the boats with Hiram's merchants, okay? So this is, again, the foundation of what they would call the, that Wangara trading route, right? Uh, and Hiram of Tyre was pivotal. Now, the Masonic connection, Hiram and these Phoenicians, these Ethiopians, they dealt with Baal. They were Baal worshipers. And we gotta, yo, everything comes back to Baal. Like the queen is a big mystery, you know, keys to a lot of the mysteries. But we got to do one on ball, man. Well, we got to point out the fact that that Tyre or Tyre 
is located like maybe I don't know, like 30, 40 miles away from Baalbek, you know, Baalbek, yeah. where they've got those like the the they've got they've got they've got finished stone, which is like 40 feet long and weighs like a hundred tons, you know. It's like what right. and doors that are 18, 20 feet high, you know. It's like what that that is all connected in some way, without That's a good. doubt. And in the John Smith map of Virginia, which is like where I, I like kind of like to base a lot of like the beginning points of, of some of my research, underneath the Susquehannock is this very strange phrase which says, the Susquehannocks were a giant like people thus attired. And the way it's spelled out, like, you know, the Francis Bacon is like, it's a, it's a very easy conclusion to say like, he's the hand who's behind it, whoever Francis Bacon may be. Um, he practiced, he practiced steganography, like, you know, all of these like different codes within public documents. And the word attired, like that statement makes no sense, but we can read into it from a couple different ways. But what always captured my attention was how attired was broken up by uh, some other aspects of the map where there is a separation between the A and the rest of the word tired and spelled T-Y-R-E-D. So it's spelled like in the traditional sense of the city. So tired or tiered is, is highlighted, like, you know, it's separated. We're not, we're not just talking about how they are attired, how they're dressed. We're also saying like this tick connects to tired. Tiered, tiered. Yes. And so, and when you go even further back, like a big deal in the 50s was how in Harrisburg, just like a little bit further upstream in the Susquehannock, they found what was known as the Phoenician stones. And they found all of these stones in like modern day Harrisburg with Phoenician writing all over it. And so, you know, we're seeing like, uh, we're seeing more and more and more evidence if you're looking, if you're paying attention, which is like, yeah, this has always been like, you know, part of this trade route. This has always been known and there's all of these kind of clues. And, and you know, we could go into the gold, but that isn't the point of my, my, my presentation. So I think I want to say that, that, that the depths of that. Yeah, that's always... what I was going to say. Like, we need to plan an episode on ball. I would like that. Because, I would like to be that honest, the more I research this and see, all right, you know, I'm one. I I think my art is real. You talk about omniversal law, my art is real. Cause and effect is real, right? Mm -hmm. So what that means is everyone's place and condition in space time right here, right now, they are responsible for it, okay? And I say that in the context of the Native American, the indigenous American, that a big part of the condition that we find ourselves in right now, because I, even though I'm not a Lenape, I am a Mi'kmaq. My people are from Canada. I'm a Mi'kmaq. I, I am of, from the Algonquin speaking lineage. Right? We was fucking with ball. We was fuck, we was playing ball. We was playing ball with the, and, and now that the real ballers, the balls of ballers are here balling us out. Now we want to be balling, you know, boo hoo, balling, right? But we was, we, we, 
when we got to read, and this is where like biblical prophecy of the prophets from Jonah on down in the Old Testament chronologically are important. Elijah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jonah, you know, the, it, the, they're good sources of history that showed how we were attempting to escape the, the invasions of Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, and attempting to flee west, ultimately to get over here, right? We, we, we showed the receipts on that, but we did it like we had a choice. We could deal with the most high omniversal law, you know, like you say, I guess they would say the law of the A-E-I-O-U's, the law, the God Amun-Ra, the most high, and, and work with omniversal law and, and, and attempt to get right, or we could play ball and use these merchants of ball as an escape as a means of escape and as a way of life, engaging with these ball merchants as a way of life. And that's what we chose. So now we over here balling, boo hoo, but yeah, we was playing with ball and that came with a lot. And we'll, you know, that's what I'm saying. We need to do a whole episode on that. Uh, you know, I've never heard anyone state that just as you stated that. Um, I've thought very similar, uh, I've come to very similar conclusions myself, particularly like, you know, you know, one being like, you know, what we've been born into. Uh, and then secondly, like, you know, the honesty of like, well, look, look, look at, look at our culture. And like, even if you don't think of yourself as a ball worshiper or like, you know, whatever oh, that man. Mean, this whole this is our world. This that's is our thing, world. Why we got to do a whole plan, a whole episode on it, because you're right. Everything is set up around ball worship. You watching football, you going to the college, like Jesse pointed that out when we was in the cemetery in Lancaster, you going, you making this pilgrimage to this uh, scientific religious temple called a college on Saturday, the Sabbath, right? worshiping these ball players yeah <clears throat> what you call yeah. yourself doing you worshiping ball and and then the the uh what they call it the the not the totems the mascots mm -hmm. that these you know ball players will have like the tight the titans the giants you know yeah man but look, the tie I, in, absolutely right. Tie <laughs> it in with your, okay. your your observation on the Jamestown map, and then I'm gonna sign off and let you, you know, turn the mic over to you, right? So, so I think I, the colonists, I think the colonists came here looking for the ball worshippers, and I think that was what when you talk about the Minquas, when you talk about the Iroquois. When you talk about who they call the Susquehanna, they who they meant were the ball worshipers of the people in them areas. Okay, because these were the ones who they allied with and you know work collectively with to enact the colonization. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So we're going to have an episode on that, bro. That, that is such a perfect setup for where I'm going to go today. Let's take a pause because I'm going to run to the bathroom, get some more water, and then, uh, and then we'll come back. All right. All right. Are you back, Ross? Yeah, I'm here. All right. All right. All right. Let me, uh, let me begin. Um, the problem with going second is that, um, you know, you forget what you're going to say, and then you're so inspired by what, what the first person said. So I want to, I'm going to be talking, I'm going to be talking about, uh, a, a, um, a family, a family, which is, um, not really well known, but if you pay attention, you're going to see they're all over the place and it ties in very much to the Susquehanna river. Uh, you hit a lot of, um, you hit a lot of my hot buttons when you're talking about the abundance of, of what we're calling North America. Uh, because I like to imagine, envision what was life like here? What was this, what was so special about this land? Why did, why did they write and they talk about this smelling in a way that other parts of the world back then did not smell? There was something there. And my sense is, uh, uh, it is my belief that our physical world is is much different than how we understand it like we just have glimpses and rivers are very very significant and the susquehanna river and the uh, lenapehana river the delaware river they're 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 parallels if you actually just look at them on a map you'll see their shapes and how they parallel one another and at the Susquehanna River, I, I want to point this out, is where we find the Baseball Hall of Fame. We're going back to the ball worship. And I think that's very, very significant as to part of, of, of what we're seeing going on. And as I just took that little break, uh, I was thinking about ball and ball worship. I'm excited about going deep into that. Not necessarily that I know as much as I'm interested in investigating ideas to begin to make sense in where we're finding ourselves right now. But I think probably the ball game, which is most accurate in describing what, what, what the ball worship is, is the ball game of roulette. Because when you are playing with that, I think like, you know, you're either going to lose it all or you're going to win it all. And, you know, that's kind of the, 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 the enticement of taking that path. And we were born into that path where we think that is normal. But that being said, I'm going to jump right into the presentation I have for us today. So let us begin. That's not what here we are. All right. So we are going to be talking about the Montour family. The Montour family was a family of Native American and French descent which was prominent in colonial New York and Pennsylvania before and during the American Revolution. Because of the Iroquois practice of reckoning descent through the female line, the family is known as Montour after the matriarch, um, which is confusing to me because I thought the matriarch was, 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 was native or indigenous. But nonetheless, so this is a general family tree and we're gonna go a little bit deep into this. And what we're 
we're going to see here is it's confusing. All of this stuff is confusing uh, for whatever reason, whether purposefully done, whether whether just because part of the story has been lost, whether it is not an accurate story, I don't know. And I'm also going to pull in other aspects because this is what I do. I pull in the synchromistic aspect. I pull in the popular culture aspect. I pull in the mythology aspect, not necessarily to say that they are true, but even in the, in the most false of stories, we can still, if we squeeze hard enough, we can find something, some gold within them. So that is where we're going to begin. So we'll start with uh, um, uh, Madame Montour. We see her being alive in the uh, late 1600s and uh, mid-1700s. She was an interpreter, a diplomat, and local leader of Algonquin and French-Canadian ancestry. Although she was well known, her contemporaries usually referred to her only as Madame or Mrs. Montour. Um, she may have been Isabel Koch, a Matisse born in 1667. Um, and she had, where do we see her? This is where we see her and we could see her family. And we're gonna go into French Margaret. We're gonna talk about Queen Esther. And we're gonna talk about Queen Catherine. But we can see that there's a, there are many other characters in this, in this family line. And uh, we see right here, there's a, a part of it. We, there's all of these talk. There's a lot of this talk of these Montour women. And it's confusing. There's this identity debate. Um, there's been confusion about the details of Madame Montour's life. She's often been confounded with her female relatives, particularly Catherine Montour. We'll go into her uh, a little bit. But I also want to point this out, that um, in 1744, Will Withheim Marsh met with the celebrated Mrs. Montour at an important treaty conference held in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And I've discussed this before. In fact, we went to the location of the, when you were in Lancaster City, of this, uh, it was called the, the Lancaster Treaty of 1744, and was between different governors of the colonies and the heads of the Iroquois nation. And we have Ben Franklin was there, a whole bunch of Rosicrucians, and this is where the idea of um, independent states or colonies, but also working together in like a federal or unified confederacy. This was first introduced into the colonialist mind through this, through this um, treaty in a speech given by Conestego, and he was interpreted by Conrad Weiser, who we find in Effort of Cloister and all these sort of things. So let's continue down and we're going to look at some of these women, because one of the things which is interesting is they all are married to chiefs. You made reference uh, at, the, at the latter part of your presentation of the significance of the Queen Sheba and um, King Solomon marriage of being uh, also having um, political or business type of benefits with, with treaties and, 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 and um, trade routes. And whether or not this is the same case, I don't know, but we're seeing a consistency of all of these Montour women marrying chiefs. So here's a, here are a couple of different um, uh, details upon that. Uh, Louis Montour, son of a French tapper, uh, trapper, an Algonquin woman, married a Huron woman, their daughter who called themselves Madame Montour. So um, 
it said that uh, they got hurt. Remember I said before her name comes from the, 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 the female lineage, but they just say right here, it came from the father. So we know that that doesn't add sense. But anyway, uh, she, was, she had an Oneida chieftain husband. And then we could see French Margaret, who was Madame's daughter. She was married to a Mohawk chieftain. And we can also see Esther, who we're going to go in deep, uh, more deeply in a little bit. And she, um, uh, she was, it says here, remained loyal to a small band of Muncie, Delaware, she inherited from her chieftain husband. And then we see the sister Catherine, and she was married to a Seneca chief. So we're seeing this consistency within this Montour family line of the women, the matriarchs holding the keys, as you pointed out in the beginning. We're seeing them, this Montour family holding a very, very significant uh, amount of influence within native life in the, the what we're now thinking of is, is New York State, Pennsylvania, uh, the area of the Iroquois Nation or Confederacy. Um, what do we have here? Margaret Montour, uh, she was married to an Iroquois, um, I'm going to butcher that name, so I'll just call him the European name, Peter Quebec. Um, uh, she had her own town, French Margaret Town. This was on the West Branch of um, the Susquehanna, uh, now at Williamsport, Pennsylvania. So I want to point this out, we, I mentioned how um, at the source location of the Susquehanna River, which is at Cooperstown, New York, is where we find the Baseball Hall of Fame told upon this mythology that baseball was invented there. Baseball goes much, much further back. It's an ancient ball game, but the modern version of baseball, it was not invented there, but it was credited there. And baseball historians know that. They call it the double day myth. Um, you know, side note, uh, what's, what I find interesting in what we're talking about with the baseball and the ball is supposedly the first modern baseball game was ever, with the modern rules was played at Elysian Fields in Hoboken, New Jersey. So we're, 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 we're further um, supporting this idea of what we're calling North America being this, um, this Elysian sort of uh, mythical sort of place. But um, and Williamsport, that's where I was going with this. And Williamsport, what is Williamsport? But it is the home of Little League Baseball, and it's where the Little League World Series takes place. Both baseball was founded, and Little League Baseball are on the same body of water, which we call the Susquehanna. They're on two different branches. In my personal opinion, and looking at this from a mythological perspective, the West Branch is the left-hand branch, which is the, the, the branch of sacrifice from the Kabbalistic tradition, which is why we see the children are playing the ball game there. And perhaps you could say baseball is a softer version of human sacrifice. Nonetheless, we see the symbology there. Maybe I'll come back to that throughout. Um, here's another Montour. This is a son. He was married to the daughter of a Seneca chief. So again, we're beginning to see how this Montour family is finding itself, you know, always embedded within leadership roles. And here we're going to talk a little bit about Esther Montour. She was called Queen Esther. She was the eldest daughter of French Margaret. Um, she was married to a chief of the Muncie Delawares. Uh, 
Um, and we're going to get to this in a little bit, but this is what she's best known for. During the American Revolution, she is reported to have led a war party at the Battle of Wyoming. Wyoming is in Pennsylvania. The state of Wyoming is named after this part of Pennsylvania, which is called Wyoming. We'll go to that in a little bit. According to some sources, um, enraged by the death of her son on the previous day, she participated in the torture and murder of 30 or so of the enemy. Those were the colonists. So she is tied, Queen Esther is tied into a story of revenge killing. And we're gonna come back to that in a little bit as well. As one puts it, she was the most infuriated demon in that carnival of blood. Others dispute this, saying that reports of atrocities were propaganda or that Esther did not participate. According to one story, she was killed by Thomas Hartley. Um, and another, another story has her dying a little bit later at Cuyoga Lake in, in New York. That's one of the Finger Lakes. The point I want to make right here is there is an inconsistency as to what happened. Did anything happen there? Who was the one who was behind that? What is known for certain is, and we're going to get into this in a little bit, this massacre, which they're talking about, not the massacre of Wyoming, but this other part, this sack, this, this, this brutal killing, this torture and murder of 30 so colonists was used as a propagandized story to elicit the support of the, of the colonists who were, did not want to be involved in the Revolutionary War. They're like, hey, this ain't my fight. I, you know, I, I, got, a, I got a good life here. I don't want to get involved in your war. Well, this is part of the story, just like 9-11, just like all of like, you know, the, uh, the, the Tet Offensive, just like the uh, Pearl Harbor, the sinking of the Lustiana, like all the same storyline is always done. Like, you know, there's, there's some sort of like outrageous story which is then used to then get the masses of people to get on board in a in a war whether or not you agree with the war or not is 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 irrelevant for the point i'm trying to make right now the point i'm trying to make is propaganda has always been used to bring the people who are just sitting on the fence into a game which which they otherwise would not be participating in so all right so let's go down here and talk a little bit about queen catherine this is a sister of queen esther so queen Catherine, Catherine Montour. Uh, she was a prominent Iroquois leader living uh, near a Seneca village um, and was informally called Catherine's Town. Uh, she's often confused with uh, Madame Montour, her aunt, her grandmother, who was a noted interpreter and governor. And to, she's also confused with Queen Esther, who is usually described as her sister. So again, we're getting all of this usually confused, all this sort of stuff. It's all, it's all kind of like, you know, it's, it's not clear. This here is a, a historical marker we see of her. Um, Queen Catherine Montour was the Seneca chief and matriarch in Iroquois Grand Council liaison to the colonials and widow of Chief Telenamont. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and then here we see Catherine's Town. Catherine's Town was a Seneca village. Um, it's located at the southern end of Seneca Lake, which is one of the Finger Lakes. Um, and it's in what's now known as Schuyler County, New York. And here we see one of the, the historical markers, which talks about the story of, of Queen Catherine. Um, and it also comes into how her town was destroyed in the Sullivan um, 
uh, in what was it called the the Sullivan something or other I can't think of the word which they use but um, this this general John Sullivan went after the Revolutionary War and destroyed all of the uh, um, the 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 towns and the 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 lives of of the what remained of the Iroquois Confederacy following um, following the Revolutionary War but uh, we'll we'll return back to that. So let me show you where we're looking at, just to give everyone a point of reference. Um, this here is New York City. This is Philadelphia. This is this is where the uh, um, all of the area which which Roz was talking about in the first half. And here we have this area. This is the Susquehanna, which goes and goes up here. And this is probably where Cooperstown is. And so this area in between is what I personally find uh, probably the most significant uh, quote unquote wilderness when they talk about the wilderness. And here we have the Finger Lakes. This is, these are the Finger Lakes. And a little bit close, uh, a zoom up, this is Seneca Lake. Seneca Lake is the largest of the Finger Lakes. And it is at the bottom of the Seneca Lake where we find, um, this is where um, Queen Catherine's village was. We see Montour Falls. We see a lot of Montour name places because this is where that family was. This is also um, Watkins Glen. It's a very important place for auto racing. I believe like this was one of the early like places where car racing took place. This is also the home of Cornell University and Ithaca College. Um, to put another context of what we're looking at with Seneca Lake is if anyone is familiar, and I highly recommend this book, The Gaia Matrix, um, uh, within that there are a lot of different um, maps showing different ley lines and different energy lines, and the author here shows how Seneca Falls which is located at the very northern part where it says Geneva, this is where Seneca Falls is, is also this important epicenter of earth energies uh, and particularly how these earth energies had been used and have been used to, um, to influence the unfolding of life on earth. But the point I'm trying to make right now is we're talking about the same place of land and we're looking at it from a, a variety of perspectives, whether it was the, the history which Raj showed with us, whether it's looking at like, you know, my, my Susquehanna uh, analysis or whether looking at um, the Gaia matrix perspective, like, you know, it keeps on pointing to this area or historically, you know, that this, this area of having great significance of um, life on earth. Um, so as we said here, Catherine, Catherine's town is in Schuyler County, New York. And the reason why I highlighted that is because we're going to go into a little bit of modern culture right now. Um, a piece of popular culture, which um, which has been in the 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 you know in the the epicenter of of the world of musical is called Hamilton the Musical. And this, this show, this, this musical, in my opinion, you know, is deserving of an entire show of itself for everything of the stories which it is um, inoculating the, the collective consciousness with. But within this musical, which I think came out, it 
2015 is when it came out and it's become one of the most successful musicals of all time and within that musical and like as far as musicals go as far as far as like pop culture entertainment goes like this thing is like top notch like it's entertaining as well but one of the things in which it does is it retells the story of alexander hamilton in a very positive light and we just want to keep this in mind for those who are keeping keeping um, score at home. You know, this from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Here's their article of how Alexander Hamilton laid the foundation for the Fed. Because Alexander Hamilton, who is both kind of like the the hero and who we sympathize throughout this throughout this musical, he's also the guy who's behind introducing central banking within the United States. He was the guy who, who went away from the, artic the articles of the Confederacy and really pushed the Bill of Rights in the Constitution. And what the difference between those are, the articles of the Confederacy, uh, which predate the, the, the Bill of Rights, the, they say, here are the, the 10 things the government is allowed to do. And if it, the government is not allowed to, if it's not one of these 10 things, the government can't do it. Well, Hamilton's the guy who introduced the Bill of Rights, and he said, here are the 10 things which people are allowed to do, and everything which is not included in this, like the government can do whatever they want. So we can begin to see, like, you know, uh, Alexander Hamilton was very much a globalist, a central banker, and all of this sort of stuff. So that's, that's another topic all said and done. But where I'm going with all of this within the story of the play is that of the Schuyler sisters. We have right here, we've got Angelica Schuyler, we've got right here uh, Peggy Schuyler, and there's another Schuyler who is not listed in this cast of characters. Well, who are these Schuyler sisters? Well, the Schuyler sisters are, where do I have it right here? Um, somewhere I've got in here. I guess I don't. The Schuyler sisters. Oh, here we are. So, okay. So Schuyler, Schuyler County, New York. Schuyler County is named after General Philip Schuyler, who was a mate, one of the four major generals during the, the American Revolutionary War. This is Philip Schuyler. Schuyler County is named after him. And who are his daughters? His daughters are Angelica, and Elizabeth and Peggy Schuyler. So we're seeing these characters, these same three sisters are like being introduced kind of the backdrop within collective, in the collective mind right now, in the collective dreaming mind. These sisters are being introduced in the exact same place, the Montour sisters who no one knows about, in the same place where they lived. So we're seeing this kind of like further blurring of stories of sisters and all of this sort of stuff. So I, I wanted to point that out before we go, um, before we go, uh, continue to go deep down into this, um, into this strange tale which lies before us. So just as French Margaret had a town, just as, as, as Queen Catherine had a town, Queen Esther had a town. And so her town uh, was located in Milan, Pennsylvania, Northeast Pennsylvania. Um, the site, which is more than 92 acres, it sits on an expansive floodplain. Um, Queen Esther is thought to have been of French and Native American ancestry. She married a Delaware Indian war chief. And she had an influential position in the tribe in the mid to late 1700s. She was 
The leader of Queen Esther's town consisted of 70 houses. And so here we see, just as we saw with um, Queen Catherine's town, we have this marker. We have the same marker for Queen Esther's town. So we can see that these, these villages are part of the, the, the American historical landscape, the colonial landscape. It's lesser known, but, but like etched in stone, if you will, for those paying attention, you know, we can see the remnants, the bones of these mysterious sisters, these mysterious, this mysterious family, particularly of the female lineage of their influence within primarily the, the Iroquois nation, but then also uh, if, if Queen Esther was married to one of the um, the Delaware chiefdoms, you know, also within Lenape heritage as well. So where is her town? So this is where Queen Esther's marker is, and it is just south of, um, and this is the Susquehanna River right here. This is the Susquehanna River. And we see this is just south of Waverly. Um, and I'll get to that in a moment, why that's important. Uh, right here, this is Watkins Glen, Montour Falls. This is where Queen, where Queen Catherine's town is. This right here is where we saw before, where Queen Esther's town is. We see they're about 40 miles apart. I'm just sharing that to give you like a point of reference in terms of like where things are relative to each other. Um, and we'll come to that in a little bit. So, okay, so right here, we have this marker and it's Spanish Hill, and this is in South Waverly. And if we see this, this is South Waverly. This is where the Spanish Hill is. It's probably about five, 10 miles downstream, or Queenstown is about five or 10 miles downstream. Again, uh, Spanish Hill is worthy of an entire episode, for Spanish Hill is one of the great mysteries of what the hell is going on here. So Spanish Hill, this is the Wikipedia version. Um, uh, opinions regarding the origin of structures found on the site vary from em embarkments created by early farmers to the remnants of Native American villages and battlements. Um, this is an image from 1881 of what it looked like. Geologists are pretty are pretty um, consistent in the fact that this is not a man-made mound, but this is a naturally occurring mound, which um, which uh, um, people have used for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, if you go to the Wikipedia page, we can see all of this interesting history of what is found here. It was particularly significant of the Susquehannocks. And this is much, much closer into the Iroquois Confederacy, the Susquehannocks and the Iroquois. They, um, they had a long history of warfare, and we know the Susquehannocks were up in this, in this area as well. But what I find is the most interesting parts of looking into Spanish Hill is a website called SpanishHill.com. Um, I recommend uh, going and reading some of that. Here is just a list of all of these different articles about the legends and the strangeness which was found there from skeletons with horns, you know, to giants, all sorts of, you know, that whole sort of, of, of line of inquiry where we see giant skeletons found throughout North America, particularly on this Spanish hill, which is just south uh, of where we find where, um, 
or we find uh, Queen Esther's town is just south of it, just down river of it. Um, this is also near Elmira, New York, for those people who are familiar. So, okay, so I'm just kind of like giving like points of reference in terms of the land in which these, uh, where, where, where the Montour sisters were living. I'm kind of going through this fast. But now I want to go to what Queen Esther is best known for, and it's known, and she's known for what is called um, the Bloody Rock. And so this is the historical monument. This is Bloody Rock right here. It is located uh, right in between someone's uh, property. And so the the historical marker says on the night of July third, seventeen seventy eight. After the Battle of Wyoming, 14 or more captive American soldiers were murdered here by a maul wielded by a revengeful Indian woman, traditionally, but not certainly, identified as Queen Esther. And so I included here, uh, and for those who want, you can go in and pause and, and read all of this, but uh, this author goes into a consistency, which is the fact that um, it doesn't seem to make sense that Queen Esther is the person who, what, as the story goes, each of these captives were lined up, their head was placed right here, their skulls were, were smashed with the maul by supposedly Queen Esther, and then they threw the bodies into the... Um, into the river. So this talks about how that does not fit within the, the quality of how Queen Esther was. Some of the theories are like that didn't happen. Some of the theories were that she was so uh, upset by the murder of her son that it brought out that anger. Uh, another story is that it was actually Queen Catherine who was married to a Seneca war chief and that would be more fitting for her behavior. Regardless of what happened, what we do know has happened is that there's at least a marker. So like at, on the level of reality of like whatever a historical marker is, that is in place. So we can at least begin our investigation with saying, well, we know that this marker has happened. So let's take a step back and we're going to say like, you know, what is the Battle of Wyoming? Here is our war marker. Here's our obelisk which we find right here. This is it located. This is where the obelisk is. And you can see it is literally a stone's throw from the Susquehanna River. And the story of the Battle of Wyoming is basically uh, out in um, the Pennsylvania wilderness um, in what we now think of as um, Scranton or Wilkesbury. This is Wyoming. We can see right here. Uh, before all of that was Forty Fort. Interesting. Forty. It's never explained why it's called Forty Fort, but Forty Fort was a a a fortress which was in the Pennsylvania wilderness and in the um, the the colonists that lived there were anti-British. And at the same time, there was all of this battle go battles going on with um with the French. And uh some of some of the some of the Indians were aligned with 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 like you know the, the colonists, some were, were aligned with the British, some were aligned with the 
French. Nonetheless, what happened was the colonists that were in the 40 fort, they went, they knew that something was up. So they went and protected themselves in their fort. And then they were seduced to come out of their fort. They thought that, you know, I'm not certain exactly what was going on. Go and read the history. It's not really that, that I've read too many contradictory stories, but what seemingly happens is they were seduced out of their fort. They came out to the field. They thought that like, you know, there was a certain number of maybe it was like of the French army Army. And then when they they got out there, there were hundreds of um, of of members of the Iroquois nation that were lying in wait, and they just massacred all of um, all of the colonists. And the ones that were not massacred on the battlefield, they were then marched onto this bloody rock, and that's where they were. Then they were they were murdered. So that's kind of the story of Queen Esther and Bloody Rock and, uh, um, and uh, uh, the Battle of Wyoming. And where do I want to go with that? Um, and we can see right here, as I said, this is 40 Fort. This is Wyoming. We can see Scranton's right here. This is the Susquehanna. This is Wilkes-Barre. And right up here is where we find Queen, Queen Esther Village. Um, before I go into that, I'll just go into a couple more like accounts of, of the Montours before we get into some of the weird stuff. Uh, what do we have in here? Um, Esther was in some ways different from other Indian women. She was of mixed blood and had the, the title of queen. This was given to her by the English who recognized her tribal leadership by using a term derived from their own experience. She was unlike the royalty of Europe in that her position as spokesperson depended more on the consent of the governed than theirs. Further, the realm over which she held sway consistently changed and while it was rich in natural resources, it, it afforded few luxuries. Um, defenders of Esther included, including a family she had held as uh, defenders of Esther, including a family she had held as prisoners long before the battle, state that Queen of the Muncies was a Christian, always wearing a cross around her neck. Um, they suggest that Catherine, the sis her sister, was much more likely the candidate, and she could have been mistaken as Esther on that shocking day as Catherine's husband of the warlike Senecas was at the battle. So that's where that comes from. Um, uh, we could see right here, um, the reaction on the part of the white man spurred in part of colonial propaganda led to a hastening of the Indians ultimate defeat. General George Washington dispatched a larger force under the command of Major General John Sullivan. This is what I was talking about. What happened after the Revolutionary War is this John Sullivan, he uh, uh, went underneath George Washington's uh, um, uh, direction that to go and burn and ravage the settlements of the Iroquois nation all the way to Fort Niagara. Um, all of this, this is all part of this history, this history which you know, unless that is your heritage or unless that is part of like, you know, you grew up in that area, you probably have no idea that that even existed. But let me keep on going down um, into, uh, um, here we see Queen Esther's Rock. This is where 44 is. They're very close to each other. Um, 
You know, we see a town right here, uh, Winona, which um, ties into some of the name places we talked at before. So now let's get into this. So um, also located right around here, you know, in Wilkes-Barre in, 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 um, in Wyoming is where we find the Institute of Hermetic Studies. We can see it right here. And this is, you know, it's a small sort of esoteric school, but it's definitely uh, uh, known throughout the world who gets into this type of esotericism. And they are um, where they are expert and teachers of Kabbalah, plant and mineral alchemy, Rosicrucianism, Martinism, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And here we see the director of the Institute of Hermetic Studies with Guy Ritchie. And we see they're headquartered in Wyoming. We see that they're in Wilkes-Barre. It's all in the same place. And so we see him connected to Guy Ritchie. And why is that significant? Because we have Guy Ritchie is the former husband of Madonna. And who is Madonna? She is the woman who claims herself as Esther. And so Esther is a very, very rich and deep name. And so we've got a connection to Madonna as Esther, uh, to this area, the same area as Queen Esther. Um, Madonna has named herself Esther after the biblical character of Queen Esther, who is the heroine of, of the, the story of Purim. And so the story of Purim is a, you know, if, you, if, if you're familiar with it, it's a revenge killing story. So now we've got like two Queen Esthers tied into a revenge story killing. Whether or not they happen, who knows? But what we do know is within the collective mind that Queen Esther and revenge killing are tied in two levels of depth onto this key river. And if we want to go back a little bit further, it is pretty much recognized by biblical scholars that Purim is an adaptation of a traditional Babylonian drinking holiday, in which of this holiday, which it's based upon, is the Queen Esther character is also Tiamat. Um, I'm not going to go down the line, but if you're familiar with some of my work on Three, uh, three Mile Island or TMI and Tiamat, which also takes place on the Susquehanna, we see this, this being tied in. But let's just focus on the Queen Esther aspect. So we've got this Queen Esther, we've got revenge killing, we've got all of this sort of stuff. Uh, you know, who is Queen Esther tying into like, you know, uh, mystery religions, all of uh, the, the name shows itself over and over again. So now let's go back to the actual physical landscape of where we're finding these stories placed upon, because we can work from the level of reality, the objective of, of the objective reality of saying this is the ground beneath my feet and then we begin by telling stories you know maybe some stories are more accurate than the others but nonetheless they're stories we add stories upon them to understand them and so we're going to go and look at the 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 queen esther mark uh town is right here further down river we're going to find um we find ourselves Wilkes-Barre and Scranton, but before we get there, we hit Standing Stone. And so what is Standing Stone? The name Standing Stone was given to this locality by the Indians on account of a very remarkable stone which stands near the river. 
And to be quite honest, well, two things. One, I have not seen this with my own eyes, but I very much want to. Um, but when you look at this picture, like it doesn't look very, very uh, um, uh, significant. And I know firsthand that pictures often are not, um, uh, cannot give the full uh, majesty of what you may see with your own eyes. So I'm assuming that this is a, one of those instances that that this stone here is probably much more striking in person than it appears in photograph. And the reason I'm saying that is because there's so much talked about this, this standing stone. So this is what it says about it. It says, this stone from the top of the bed of the river is 44 feet high, uh, it is 16 feet wide and about four feet thick. At ordinary low water, the stone is 22 or 23 feet above the surface of the water. The lower edge of the stone must penetrate the surface of the earth to a considerable depth in order to be able, as it has, to resist the force of the water in freshness and the ice, which when the river breaks up, suddenly moves with apparent, apparently irresistible power. The stone has been a landmark during the history of this county, uh, and the surveys of both the Susquehanna Company and Pennsylvania are referred to it. So we see throughout the history of Pennsylvania, they keep on making reference to this stone. And they're saying like, it is in there deep. Like this river, when, when it moves, it is so powerful that it should have knocked this stone down and it never seems to budge it. And so here's a little bit more about it. Here's another image of it. And this is um, from the Pennsylvania Department of Geology. And it's an outstanding, in their, their article series, the outstanding geological features of Pennsylvania, they're talking about standing stones. So again, another, another instance of the significance, the geological um, uniqueness of this standing stone, which we're finding Queen Esther's town in between Spanish Hill up here, whatever that may be. And then we got standing stone down here. Um, so we'll continue down on this. Uh, the reason why, and, and, the, and from Standing Stone to Spanish Hills, about 20 miles, just to give people a point of reference of what we're talking about. Um, and then here we have down to Scranton, so we can see just the overall relativity of, uh, of all of these places. And I'm gonna come back to the Standing Stone in a minute from a more like mythological pop culture pop cultural synchromistic perspective, but I wanna go and, and kind of like tie this into the story as well. There is something which is known as Queen Esther's curse and the ghost of Queen Esther. And this is another one of these like, you know, is this just totally manufactured story? Was this a real curse? Is this just like, you know, part of the mythology of, of, of the location? I'm not certain. There is immensely little written about this like Queen Esther's curse, but there's enough written about it that it justifies a Wikipedia entry. And I am not suggesting by any stretch of the imagination that because it's in Wikipedia, it is true. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is because it is in Wikipedia on the level of reality, 
where Wikipedia is considered a top source, it is true there. In the same way of like, regardless of, of what happened at Bloody Rock, it's at least true enough that it is garnered one of these historical markers. So the story of, um, the story of, of Queen Esther goes like this, is um, the Queen Esther story of the sacrifice and the brutal torture and murder of all of these colonists uh, spread throughout the colonies. And like, you know, it was used to garner support for, for joining the cause. And then after the Revolutionary War, um, there, was, there was then payback, payback, the, the, the pound of flesh was being requested. And so as the story goes, is part of this, this um, this uh, Sullivan expedition, this General Sullivan expedition to destroy the Iroquois nation who um, were, were not particularly, uh, were not on the same side of the colonists, were gonna get the revenge. And so Sullivan was gonna go through and, and, and destroy the Confederate, uh, the, the Iroquois Confederacy. But one of the first stops, if you will, was at, at Queen Esther's town. And so coming up from York, Pennsylvania was this Colonel Thomas Hartley, and he was said to have gone to the town and um, they captured Queen Esther and then they murdered everyone in her village in front of her and then they hung her on a tree and then maybe threw her body in the river. I think that's like one of the versions of what it said. Um, and then going with that was then Queen Esther laid a curse. She laid a curse, um, which uh, was, 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 was tied to the river and tied to the further expansion of, um, of, of the, the, you know, what would eventually be known as, um, as the, the, the divine man, what, what do they call it? Where if you go west, uh, the, the Monroe Act, I can't remember what they call it, but basically it being the divine rule to take over our divine right to take over the um, all of North America. But the, the curse lies to that. So whether or not this actually happened because it's it's in debate is is it's at least it's it's at least a story which is part of the collective uh, uh, mind on a certain level. So all right. So now I'm going to go into some more of false history tied onto the Susquehanna River, which, as I said in the beginning, a little while ago, is at the source, is under the influence of the great ball game baseball with the Baseball Hall of Fame. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring up this the the Walt Disney story of Pocahontas. This is probably one of the best known examples of how a certain history, a certain mythology was applied to, to the native life with the introduction of the colonies onto North America. And it's also a, a, one of the first points of where we're seeing the marriage between uh, native culture and of European culture at this like, you know, early, early uh, um, 1600s timeframe. And the Pocahontas story is best known in the modern world through the Disney adaptation of the movie. And so 
Pocahontas as an animated feature film came out in 1995. And, you know, I'm assuming everyone who's watching this is, is very aware of, of Disney's role in creating a collective dream understanding of reality on the mass mind you know that that it is a they are they are about as good as you get at doing that type of 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 mind magic and they are immensely immensely uh um tied into magical practices so that being said this film was disney's 33rd animated feature film and you know how just the fact of life of how all the large companies work is like you know there's a long-term plan and animated feature films is the the real namesake of the disney company so the release of their 33rd film like is not happenstance like you know that is planned and that is known and the fact is it is pocahontas and so just to go a little bit deeper of how we know that 33, which is also the secret code of Francis Bacon, he used to tie, he used to often um, uh, hide his name in steganography through the initials of TT for 33. Um, within Disney, they have a private club known as Club 33. And, you know, if, if you want to go down that, that rabbit hole, there's a whole bunch of of questionable activities which are happening in this 33 club. And so we have that Pocahontas, the 33rd film uh, is, is very significant within Disney and the retelling of Native American women and particularly in their marriages. This is you know where we see it tied in. And within this movie is a particularly um, important song, important relative to the movie called Just Around the River Bend. And so why is that significant? So here we have the Susquehanna River right here. Up around here, this is probably like where Standing Rock is. This is, you know, Philadelphia, you could see is right here. This is where I am in Lancaster. And you can see very clearly how the Susquehanna River becomes this Chesapeake Bay. The Chesapeake Bay was said to have formed 13,000 years ago, just at the same time as the Delaware was said to form. This is Camp uh, Cape Henelopen right here. This is the, uh, the Delaware River. And we could see at the very bottom of the Susquehanna River where it empties out into the Atlantic is this river right here, which makes it a tributary. You know, if you want to be as literal as you can say, if this is, if this, the Chesapeake Bay is actually the Susquehanna River in the most literal sense it is, we've got a tributary right here. And this is where Jamestown was located. Jamestown is located where my cursor is. And so when Pocahontas is singing her song, her very, very important song about the river, she is tying it into the Susquehanna River, where we find Queen Esther, where we find all of this stuff. We've got the Baseball Hall of Fame at the source right up here, and then we have Pocahontas down here at the other end. So the reason I bring that up is because this is not the only Disney film that this storyline is supporting. So more recently is a movie called Frozen 2, which I think probably came out like right around the same time as Hamilton the musical. And the story of Frozen 2, which is the most grossing, the highest grossing Disney 
animated film of all time is that of these two sisters. So now we're dealing with sisters again. And what we find out in this Disney film is that these two sisters find out about their, their truth, their, their, their lineage, which had been kept with them. And what this lineage is, is that their grandfather, upon moving into a new, into a new uh, world, he made a, he made a treaty with the locals living there, the indigenous folks who were living in this, like, you know, this, this area of, um, uh, in this new world, and he double crosses them. That's what the whole story of, of, of Frozen 2 is about, that their grandfather double crossed the North Uldra. That's what they call it in the middle, in the, in the movie. And in fact, that it was a North old and uh, a North Oldra woman saved their father during the battle and the war that in uh, that occurred once that it became clear that the uh, that um, what was originally their grandfather had double crossed the the native folks that their father then married a, a North Oldra woman and they are the children of both this, this um, will you, what they're telling you in, in Disney is between the European and of the native folks, exactly like the Montour sisters. So we're seeing that again. And so the, how the story unfolds in the Disney film is the, the one of the sisters begins to hear a mystical song and it turns out that the song which she hears is one it turns out to be her mother who supposedly died before but it's also the voice of the river for the entire movie the secret of the movie is that there is a river a mystical river that explains all and by returning to the river they go and they learn they learn their true history and past. And so this is what we hear. This is like the famous song from that, from that um, movie. So it says, where the north wind meets the sea, there's a river full of memory. For in the river all is found. In her waters, deep and true, lay the answers and the path for you. The other part of this particular movie is the fact that there are these four mysterious standing stones which have a great significance of understanding the true nature of how the North Uldra people related to the earth. And by the way, the way he the, 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 the king double-crossed the North Uldra people, it was by building them a dam. And it was the destruction of the dam which frees them because, you know, in the Hollywood, there's always a happy ending. So I want to go and um, conclude this with a comparison, a juxtaposition of our North Uldra mystic stones with the, with the sacred standing rock, which we find in the mystical Susquehanna River, the same river where we learn of Pocahontas, the same river where we learn of Bloody Rock, of Queen Esther, of Queen Catherine, where we see them all, we see the same stone, or at least a very, very similar stone. 
And so my sense is, did I answer any questions with this presentation? And my guess is no. I probably created a whole bunch more uh, of more questions. But what I'm hoping I have done for the listeners is help to to add a level in which we are finding our a level of inquiry as we are finding ourselves in this moment of understanding where we are, what we are, and what it is we are to do as we move forward. So it is with that, my friend, I open up the mic Man. again. Yeah, synchronicity is powerful. First, how you say the rock was 44 feet tall, 16 feet wide, that's four by four. Uh-huh. And then four feet, uh, you know, in width. So that's all fours. So that says there is some portal dynamic. And, and they called it a uh, 40 fort. Right, and that 40 fort, yes. And so we got, and they also say the river is 444 miles 44 miles, miles that's right. So you're beginning to see it over and over and over again. Man. And it all begins at that 40 by 40 structure, which they built. Uh, right. Right here in Nittapakank, uh, you know? Oh. Yes. So that, that caught my attention. I also want to speak on Esther a little more, biblically. Please. Very relevant, particularly when we talk about ball, right? Because Esther is, you know, the book of Esther. It's, an, it's one of those books that, you know, is around the time of, of Jonah. And, and, you know, like what was the nation of Israel doing after or during Babylon captivity? Because the book of Esther occurred during Babylon captivity. She was the daughter of Mordecai, okay? And Mordecai uh, wanted to kind of get in good with the king of Babylon, right? And the thing with Esther, she was gorgeous. So Mordecai lined it up where Esther was married into the king's bloodline of Babylon. And then that allowed Mordecai to be kind of like, become kind of like a, a, a spokesperson for the Hebrew captives of Babylon, right? Because now his daughter was married to the king, so he had access to the king, I want to say it was King Nebuchadnezzar, right? Uh, I haven't read this passage in a while, so don't quote me on that. But the story is is generally what is is you know said to have occurred, and so he used his access to the king supposedly to put off a planned massacre the Babylonians had for some captives, right? So now, when, when you study the name Mordecai, that means son of Marduk, 
who is Marduk Baal. When you study Esther, her name means daughter of Ishtar. Who is Ishtar? The queen of Marduk, the queen of Baal. Marduk is Baal, here we are again. And so what Esther, Esther represents in terms of the prophets, right? Because each prophet kind of represented the different options facing the nation of Israel during what I guess they would call that diaspora, you know? The, the destruction of the Northern and Southern kingdoms and the dispersal of the people uh, first initiated by the invasion of Assyria and then culminating in the days of Jesus with the occupation of Rome, you know? And Ishtar and Mordecai being what went down in the time of Babylon, them being uh, captive by the oppressors and having to assimilate and take on like some of the culture, some of the behaviors of the oppressor, but make the boat best of it to survive. Hmm. You know, that's who Esther and Mordecai embody. You know, the sons of Marduk and the daughters of Ishtar. They took on names of Baal and, and Ishtar. You know, they was in Babylon. They had to do as the Babylon, as the Babylonians do, right? And so when you take that in the context that these two sisters uh, were intermarrying with the chiefs but then somehow seemed to be negotiating with the colonists. And, you know, that thing takes on whole new meanings. Mm -hmm. Takes on, you know, when you say uh, Queen Esther. Yeah. <laughs> like that's the, I, <laughs> I love that you brought that up because you're absolutely right. Like looking at the Purim story and then like, contrasting it to to like what we were just talking about like there's like why is this repeating itself like it's only just like the veil is very very thin like as soon as you scratch through it and like this is the same storyline this is the same story being told again um uh, is 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 certainly fascinating well um, to me and it all to me it all comes back to ball ball yeah. hercules marduk Name, known by many names, you know, and Ball getting into the Americas. I, I, if, from my research, I would say European colonization was a symptom of Ball already being here. Yeah. And create the condition that was created through the indigenous engaging with Ball, man. And, so, and so, so when the so when the process of colonization was actually happening, you would see instances like Queen Esther, like where you talk about where it kind of like crystallizes into one historic event that it's like, yo, this is the this is like a penultimate expression of the indigenous agreeing to fuck with ball. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, and we, th this will be part of the, the next show is it is my, it is my, um, is the conclusion I've reached at least right now that where all of that bloody rock took place, that Scranton, that that is on top of the the world's largest and and majority of anthracite deposit on all of the earth, whatever the hell anthracite may be, like it is it is a crystallized coal, crystallized carbon, exactly without with it's it has no smoke. That's right. And and so if you go and you look at everything that has happened, like, let's put this in point of reference. Like, where is the sitting president? He's from there. He's from Scranton. Where's the Clintons from? They're from Scranton. Where is like the mob from? They're from Scranton. Where is 9-11 traced to Scranton? Uh, BF Skinner and behaviorism, Scranton. Uh, the, there's so much within our history of what's going on in Scranton. I'm thinking like Scranton is where they did all of- them. We can't forget the office is from Scranton. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's where it all began with me. And so my sense is like that, whatever anthracite is like going down there, like that's something and uh, like opening it up and monetizing it. And like, you know, and all like, you know, play it like ro the Russian roulette. Like, does that bleed into it? Like, you know, those, those that would be the type of questions which I would like to um, I would like to bring in. And then there's uh, one in, in that next episode, but I, I want to go back to the Purim story. I'm curious what your thoughts are. So within that Purim story, within the within the the holiday, so the bad guy in 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 the Purim story, the bad uh, uh, um, Babylonian general who is going to go and kill all of um, the Israelites. Um, and he was like double, he was double cross. He was tricked by Esther and like he ended up getting killed. And then how it's celebrated um, is in modern times, how, how Purim is celebrated is you eat cookies that are in the shape of the bad general's hat because wow. the bad general was known to wear a triangle hat. And so you would make, like he was killed. So you'd eat the cookies. You're like, oh, I'm so happy. I'm eating the cookies because that guy's dead. You know, that's like the, the revenge thing. And so the, the triangle hat. And so I couldn't help but notice both you and I are wearing hats today. So like hat, hats are in, in play today. We both got the circle hats. But then we also have this. Uh, when we talked about the Phoenicians, the Phoenicians, particularly the sailors, the sailing Phoenicians were known for their hats. And it was a different type of triangle hat. It's called a Phrygian hat, P-H-R-Y. And that's a friggin' triangle, or at least it's triangular because it goes to a point and the thing folds over. And it is tied directly to the French Revolution, which is tied so like, so I don't have a conclusion with all of this hat stuff. But there's something going on with like circle hats and triangle hats. And, and I talked about the headgear, which we saw kelp wearing, kelp, which wasn't yeah. a hat at all, but a wrap. Yes. So Man. I don't know where that is, but I definitely like, you know, half the fun and hopefully everyone who's paying attention or who's playing along with us at home is like, is, is as we're opening layer and layer of like, you know, what is this, what is this, 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 experience we are awakening to to see like oh this is what we inherited what do we do yeah, man so yo the sign of a true mystic like you know the man is uh him him, him working with it every question and answer it's gonna make you ask you know 44 more 
So I think we put a lot on the people's heads today, bruh. You know, we penetrated some deep mysteries looking at the queens and the keys that the queens hold. So we definitely are going to have to uh, come full circle and do the queens again, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, man, you have any closing words you want to share? Uh, this was a great one. Uh, this was a long one. Uh, I probably I'm going to watch it myself in a couple, breaking it down a few times uh, to to allow it. Uh, I'm grateful for all that you shared. I'm grateful for all of those who participated along at home, and uh, it's always a lot of fun. Yeah, man. All right. Well, from one missing to another, man. Salute, bruh. And we'll tune in. Right. We got yo. Let me say while we here, July. We got a, a, the show we got lined up in July. All I'm going to say is be ready. <laughs> but uh, while I'm here, too, again, I want to uh, mention doing two Wissahickon Wellness Walks in July, second and fourth Thursday. Go to wissahickonwellness.com. We hitting up Nitabankya, the where the queen meets. We hitting it up. We going to go to the Council Rock. We, uh, we going to hit the mounds up here. You know, which is, is, I'm telling you, is one of the most missed. I've, I've, I'm thankful to be able to say I've traveled the world. You mm. know, I've been to a lot. I haven't been to Asia, but I've been to Africa, North, East, and West. I've hit a lot of America. I've been in Central America, the Caribbean, right? So I've been to a lot of mystical places. And I'm going to tell you this, this uh, Queens Mound right up here, Chestnut Hill, Mount Airy, Germantown. It's one of the most mystical places I have ever been in my life. So come and feel it for yourself. Be a part of these Wissahickon Wellness Walks, you know? All right, brah. Much love. Respect to you, all right? Same to you. Respect.